last kind of segues perfectly into that song. over here that's just for amusement purposes only. It's now officially for amusement purposes only. Hey, there's a... What the hell is that? I jiggled some wires and I think I fixed it or broke it worse. <laughs> this is hell. In our new studio, can we have less <laughs> of a need for wire jiggling? <laughs> that would be awesome. Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell, and we are back with a live four-hour This Is Hell, broadcasting from the studios of Chicago's Sound Experiment, WNUR, 89.3 FM, Evanston, streaming live right now and podcast, and it's entirely shortly after at thisishell.com. More accurately, I am back, as Alex was here last week, but I was not because this friggin' bug that has afflicted me now for over three months came back with a vengeance. So thanks, Alex, for filling in. But, Alex, we got an email from a listener who was very upset with one of your interview selections from for last week's show, and I'll be sharing that email during listener feedback in our second hour, or feedback, whichever you prefer. During this week's Hell, we reveal the links between cops and white supremacists. We dig deep into our misunderstanding of black history. We'll do an autopsy on the alleged death of the American dream. We'll try to figure out just what Africa means within our imaginations. Of course, we'll have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, which I'll tell you about in a moment. And I'll share my honest thoughts on dishonesty. Our first guest, who is returning to This Is Hell for the third time, will be writer and political analyst Natasha Leonard, who wrote the article, Even the FBI Thinks Police Have Links to White Supremacists, But Don't Tell the New York Times, which was posted earlier this month at The Intercept. Natasha's story is in reaction to a New York Times Sunday Magazine investigation into the rise of the far right. That writing was by Janet Reitman and called U.S. law enforcement failed to see the threat of white nationalism. Now they don't know how to stop it. Reitman argues that for two decades, domestic counterterrorism strategy has ignored the rising danger of far-right extremism. In the atmosphere of willful indifference, a virulent movement has grown and metastasized. And Reitman is correct, but Natasha sees a huge blind spot that Reitman missed, and that is why the cops have ignored the rise of white supremacy, which Reitman says is inexplicable. And according to Natasha, it's because many cops are white supremacists. And don't worry, reading the New York Times investigation is not required for you to understand Natasha's perspective. We here at This Is Hell would never, ever, ever give you homework. I promise. Natasha's book, Violence, Humans in Dark Times, which she co-wrote with Brad Evans, was just released this week by City Lights. Natasha's most recent uh, appearance on This Is Hell was in September of last year, when she was on to talk about her article, Don't Give Fascism an Inch to Defeat White Supremacy, We Must Confront It Directly, which was part of a debate package written for that month's issue of In These Times on the reaction to um, the Charlottesville incident with the Antifa and fascists confronting each other. In the second hour of This Is Hell, following some really 
really rotten history. We'll talk black history with historian Pero G. Dagbovi, author of Reclaiming the Black Past, the Use and Misuse of African American History in the 21st Century. Pero will dis- describe how we view black history, what we get wrong about black history, why we get it wrong, and what that view of black history means for a potential future of black liberation. And you'll be surprised where Pero finds some misreadings of black history at the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. To be fair, Pero finds the museum to be a great resource with a wealth of information about black history that everybody should go to. But what shortcomings the, museum's, the museum does have reflects the shortcomings in the way we view black history, especially in erasing its more revolutionary, even militant past. Pero is University Distinguished Professor of History and Associate Dean in the Graduate School at Michigan State University. Pero is the incoming editor of the Journal of African American History for 2019. Next year, the journal's editorial board will include past This Is Hell guests Keisha Blaine and Ibram X. Kendi. The current editorial board includes past guests Robin D.G. Kelly and Gerald Horn. Pero also plays soccer regularly with my brother by a different mother with a different lover, but Pero doesn't know that yet. However, he will be finding it out later on this morning's show. Following our conversation with Pero in this week's third hour, we'll hear from scholar Sarah Churchwell, author of Behold America, the Entangled History of America First and the American Dream, which was named a Smithsonian Magazine Best History Book of 2018. The American Dream doesn't mean what you think it means. In fact, the meaning of the American Dream has long been debated. That is, until recently. And no, it hasn't always been about rags-to-riches economic success stories. Meanwhile, the American Dream's antithesis, America First, is also misunderstood. Well, at least it's... Ku Klux Klan and Nazi origins have been misunderstood. We'll find out what the American dream means, how we got to that definition of the American dream, and what it meant in the past when we converse with Sarah, who is professor of American literature and public understanding of the humanities at the University of London. Sarah's most recent book prior to Behold America was the 2014 work, Careless People, Murder, Mayhem, and the Invention of of the great Gatsby. Then in our last hour of this week's This Is Hell, we have another guest who, like Natasha Leonard, is returning to the show for the third time, writer Zoe Samudzi, author of the Aurora Magazine article, Africa's Place in the Radical Imagination, Our Internationalist Concerns for Africa Must Necessarily Transcend the Flattened Talking Points to Which the Continent is Frequently Reduced in our discourses. It turns out our vision of what Africa is is grounded more in fantasies, myths, and our political imagination than it is in reality. And don't get all full of yourselves, lefties. You get Africa wrong, too. For instance, did you know the German people were primed for the Holocaust by their 19th century genocide in Africa? Yeah, I didn't either. Zoe is a black feminist writer and PhD student in medical sociology at the University of California, San Francisco. Her current research is focused on critical race theory and biomedicalization. You may remember Zoe from being on our show in the past, the most recent time we spoke with Zoe. She was on with William C. Anderson to discuss their co-written book, As Black as Resistance, Finding the Conditions for Liberation. After Zoe will wrap up this week's Hell, the way we wrap up most editions of This is Hell, and that's with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff answers the question, What have we become? 
All that stuff, plus rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what happened on this week's and last week's Patreon podcast of This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We also want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. We're not going to get to twist off knowledge. Who's kidding who? And what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is How? We'll definitely share that with you. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell. Let's start with you, Alex. What's new about you? Uh, rest in peace, George H.W. Bush. A lot of people might not know this, but uh, he was the one that, was ta- that taught me it was okay to be weird. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, it's so odd that uh, the guy who used to be in charge of the CIA rose to such power in this country. Really weird that that happened that way. Also, Leo O'Connell. Leo, how are you doing? I'm good. Uh, I think my cat peed on my jacket last night. And so, are you wearing that jacket right now? Yes, I am. So sorry, Alex. I smell like <laughs> cat pee. Let's all hope it was your cat. <laughs> this is Hell is Broadcast Live Without Interruption on WNUR. 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago Sound Experiment, streaming live online. Right now at our website, thisishell.com. Podcast shortly after at the same place in its entirety, thisishell.com. And now airing an abbreviated one-hour version on Sunday mornings in Moscow, Idaho on KRFP and on Lumpen Radio on Chicago's South Side. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and somebody over there has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is curing your hangxiety. Hangxiety! In an article at thetab.com, they describe hangxiety as the feeling of anxiety you feel when you're hungover. You wake up and think everything is okay, and then get this sudden sinking feeling of guilt, paranoia, and anxiety. Every time. Once it's there, it's a constant feeling for the whole day. Laura Whitehurst from Anxiety UK is quoted saying, When we drink alcohol, we tend to lose our inhibitions, and the self-critical part of our brain isn't speaking to us as much. As the alcohol leaves our system in the early morning, our adrenal systems start to reactivate to help us remove the toxins from our bodies, and therefore leaving our adrenaline pumping harder. The tab says you can cure your anxiety by slow breathing, staying hydrated, exercise, and fresh air, like going on a walk, and plenty of sleep. Or failing that, you can just get your mates to tell you exactly what you did the night before and hope it isn't anything too bad. That makes this hang <laughs> this week's hangover cure curing your anxiety. Anxiety. And they even talk about a more intense version of it called prangxiety, but I didn't want to make that hangover cure any longer than it already was. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. Honesty is a virtue, right? I mean, we want to be honest. We even expect sincerity from others to not be deceived with misrepresentations or concealing the truth through omitting important facts. I mean, We at least hope that we embrace the high moral standard of honesty, and in an ideal world, everyone would embrace the principles and ethics that are displayed when we are completely truthful and honest. Unfortunately, as much as we have institutionalized racism and misogyny, as much as we have baked into our system those levels of hate, we've also institutionalized dishonesty. Well, I shouldn't say we. That would mean we have direct access to the decision-making processes that have institutionalized dishonesty, which we don't, by definition, within a representative democracy. No, it's not that we institutionalize dishonesty or racism or misogyny. We may be complicit in it, taking part in the dishonesty, but it wasn't us who created the system that enforces and reinforces dishonesty. 
To reveal the guilty party, we must consider the dishonest relationships that determine what we eat and breathe, where we sleep, how much we learn, and how we are protected from disaster and crime. Years ago, I was complaining to a friend of mine who is an attorney and leading up to the Great Recession had worked for some of the banks responsible for the housing bubble that caused the financial crisis that still affects us to this day. I told the lawyer how another friend had recently bought a home. The home buyer explained to me that the goals of the bank and her lender were far different from hers. She wanted to pay off her mortgage as quickly as possible while the bank wanted her to take as much time as possible or not pay off the loan at all so they could take the home. Despite all the friendly congratulations to the first-time homebuyer, the lender's goal was to keep my friend owing the bank money for as long as possible, if not to just take her home away. I explained to my lawyer friend, there's nothing more dishonest than the relationship you have with a bank. You want to be out of debt as quickly as possible, but the lender wants to keep you in debt and beholden to them for as long as possible. My lawyer friend said, not so fast. The relationship between client and attorney is the most dishonest. The client wants the case to be resolved as quickly as possible, while the attorney again wants to drag it out for as long as possible to continue billing the client. I told the home buyer what the lawyer said. The home buyer disagreed. No, she said, the most dishonest relationship you have is with insurance companies. As the person who is insured, you want to get as much money as you can from your insurer to cover your costs and hardship, while the insurer, to assure profits for shareholders, wants to give you as little as possible, even to the point of not covering the costs of which you believed you were insured against, which means in our profit-driven system, how we are represented within the law is dishonest, how we get the resources resources to have a home is dishonest, and how we protect that home from fires and floods. Well, that's dishonest too. And it doesn't stop there. Consider the food we eat. If agribusiness was so concerned about how healthy your food is, do you think they would have put so many artificial preservatives in our food? I know there are plenty of websites, often funded by food producers, that state there is no link between any food and cancer. However, as recently as this past February, the British Medical Journal published a report stating ultra-processed food intake was associated with higher overall cancer risks, stuff like instant noodles and chicken nuggets. Whether it's the chemical lining of microwave popcorn bags or the one in canned foods or the carcinogens that are found in highly processed meats like hot dogs or the ones that occur when red meat is well done or nitrates in smoked, salt, er, salted, or pickled foods, meant to give those products longer shelf life as well as distributing those foods over greater dis distances, or white flour whose nutritional value is destroyed in a pro process involving chlorine to make it more pleasant to the customer's eyes, or chemically treated vegetable oils, or farmed fish that have come in contact with antibiotics, pesticides, and other carcinogenic uh, chemicals, our relationship with food pr producers and even the food we eat is very dishonest. Or the worst cancer culprit when it comes to food, high fructose syrup that is in much of our food and profits U.S. farmers instead of using Cuban cane sugar. We can find the deception and dishonesty in nearly all of our relationships that support our life. Of course, there's the century-old relationship we had with tobacco, where the manufacturers are proven to have known that they were causing cancer and did nothing about it. Then there's the report from earlier this year that was published in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health titled, Pollution from Fossil Fuel Combustion is the Leading Environmental Threat to Global Pediatric Health and Equity. Chemicals used in fossil fuels like benzene, sulfur dioxide, nitrous oxide, uh, pet coke, formaldehyde, uh, 
mercury, radon, fracking sand, or hydrofluoric acid, and many more, have all been linked to cancer. Even those awesome new neoprene winter gloves that are keeping your hands warm right now, or that neoprene form-fitting swimsuit you just put on your wish list, even the process of making things that keep you warm and dry have been linked to cancer, especially for the poor and often minorities who live near the plants where the chemicals are produced. The poor and marginalized people who can only afford to live in the shadow of imminent death. There's also the misleading prospectuses, or prospecti, hmm. written up by entrepreneurs who are trying to attract investors, followed by the misleading accounting that is meant to dupe shareholders who could not care less as long as the profits keep rolling in, the dividend checks keep clearing the bank, all of which corrupts the market with dishonesty in that environment. Is it any surprise that our politics and politicians are riven with dishonesty? After all, they are our elected representatives, and what more accurate way to be representative of our dishonest society and culture than to be dishonest yourself? Not that we would know, of course, as the news media prioritizes access over accuracy, leading to dishonest profit-driven news reports about how devastating our system truly is. We also tolerate the misleading commercials that interrupt those misleading news reports. Drugs are promoted that we are told are some sort of miracle cure, yet within the very same ad we are told that the drug may actually cause death. Institutionalized dishonesty is at the heart of every level of capitalism. We are all victims of hucksters and fraud that are the backbone of our neoliberal globalized system. Lying is the engine that keeps capitalism humming. So is it any wonder across the political spectrum in the United States we are inundated with misleading and untruthful information, not only from our elected leaders, but from everyone around you, even that person sitting next to you at the bar, the news anchor on TV, or the politician the anchor is covering. Capitalism is a house of lies built on a foundation of deception and dishonesty. We all constantly lie to each other and ourselves under the thumb of capitalism, which presses down on us, squeezing out any last remnants of truthfulness. In capitalism, honesty isn't a virtue. It's a disadvantage, a risk to your bottom line. And if you dare to be honest, your shareholders will use the law to bring a lawsuit against you as your honesty is clearly a threat to their profits. Honesty is no longer an asset. Honesty is now a liability. In capitalism, honesty isn't a virtue. In capitalism, honesty is corrupted into something that is immoral and wrong. Warning, capitalism should not be used by those who are allergic to capitalism, including children, the poor, pregnant women, or those who want to become pregnant, or all women for that matter, or those that capitalism has labeled minorities or who are against inequality. And for many of capitalism users, capitalism may cause severe depression, even death. Capitalism should not be used by those with heart ailments and can promote diabetes as well as hair loss. If you're going to use capitalism, please ask your doctor if capitalism is right for you. Capitalism should not be used by anyone except those with spinal issues who would rather make their dishonest living off of the exploited backs of others. Where all living capitalisms lie, and that's why this is hell. And this week's question from hell is, what $50 maximum gift should Chuck request from his secret Santa? What $50 maximum gift should Chuck, that's me, request from his secret Santa? All replies right on air during the third hour of this week's show, and I promise I will actually request the gift suggested by the winning response. This uh, week's winner will get, well, it's a secret. 
Again, the question from hell is, what $50 maximum gift should Chuck request from his secret Santa? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, white supremacist cops, misreading black history, the battle between the American dream and America first, our fantasized view of Africa. During a moment of truth, Jeff answers the question, what have we become? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell are Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell. Live from the rotting corpse that is broadcast radio, this is hell. No, it's not that law enforcement has ignored the rise of white supremacy in the United States. The rise of white supremacy is because far too many cops are white supremacists themselves. Here to explain, writer and political analyst Natasha Leonard is author of the article, Even the FBI thinks police have links to white supremacists, but don't tell the New York Times, which was posted earlier in November at The Intercept. Natasha is a contributing writer at The Intercept, and her new book, Violence, Humans in Dark Times, was just published by City Lights, and she co-wrote that book with Brad Evans. This is Natasha's third appearance on This Is Hell. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Natasha. Hello, how are you doing? Good. i was been really looking forward to this interview, and thank you for rescheduling uh, my last-minute sickness last week. You can follow Natasha on Twitter at Natasha Leonard. That's L-E-N-N-A-R-D. You write how, uh, on, well, early last month, uh, on November 3rd, the New York Times Magazine published a lengthy and in-depth piece on how U.S. law enforcement has willfully ignored the threat of white supremacist extremism for decades. The author, Janet Reitman, takes an ostensibly deep dive into how law enforcement, particularly uh, federal agencies, has uh, neglected the growth of the violent far right, in part owing to Republican political agenda setting for a story framed around a blind spot, you argue. The piece itself is hobbled by an egregious case of Sightlessness. Before we get to where you see the blind spot in the Times reporting, to what extent do you think Republican political agenda setting has not only facilitated the rise of the far right, but is also a blind spot in the rise of the right? Because, you know, we've had plenty of critics on our show pointing out the potential dangers of Republican political agenda setting dating back to the 1990s. And I've heard people fearing this would happen dating back to the Reagan era. So is the far right due to the Republican agenda and its rhetoric? And to what extent did nobody see this coming? And why didn't they see this coming? Um, so, I mean, in terms of what this New York Times feature was focusing on, it wasn't wrong. It was correct. So basically, in terms of the national security agenda and what got to be called terror and what got to be called extremism, um, you know, particularly after 9-11, um, that agenda was about Islamophobia, obviously, and that that became the organizing principle around how America saw itself in the world and how it saw itself in terms of domestic terror management. And so, of, of course, that meant that when, when America talked about extremism, it was not talking about far-right extremism in an agenda-setting way, and that relates to domestic law enforcement, too. Um, and that was, by and large, a right-wing, Republican-driven, conservative uh, neoconservative agenda. Um, I'm nervous to just call it a Republican agenda because obviously um, when something becomes such a settled ideology, it's not just because one party is agreeing with this. Obviously, there became a 
bipartisan consensus that we, if we're going to talk about terror, we're talking about uh, Islam. Um, and it's not just because um, the GOP decided to do that. Uh, but in, in relation to the story that I wrote and this New York Times piece, um, I think it is accurate to say that um, the post-9-11 blind faith and focus on that the only terror we had to worry about would be Islam um, was definitely operative in no funding and no attention being paid to um, neo-Nazis, white supremacist groups, uh, which, you know, didn't only <laughs> reemerge out of nowhere with Trump's ascendance. It's been a violent problem, both at the <laughs> um, core of what America is for since its birth, but also just it, uh, in terms of uh, extremism and violence, white supremacist groups have been responsible for uh, you know, many, many, many violent acts in the past few decades and uh, for m most of the past two decades responsible for more violent acts than any homegrown Islamist terror. Um, so that, in terms of federal agenda setting, uh, was certainly relevant. And that was what this New York Times piece was about. And that there's nothing wrong with that per se, except that the next question needs to be asked, which is, is this just an agenda that was so focused on Islamophobia missing something, or is there something more going on? And clearly there's something more going on when we talk about racism, white supremacy, and law enforcement in the United States. I'm going to hate to ask this question, but it seems like a qualifier that you always have to have in the U.S. to make sure that people aren't just, uh, to make sure that people are somehow supporting their local police or whatever. What you what would you say to someone who contends they're not all bad cops and that any charge of racism against police condemns each officer, each and every officer individually? Because I had a conversation with a police officer off the record who expressed their anger over the racism and white supremacy they saw within their own police force. Um, you know, when, when people repeat, when, when people with brains repeat uh, ACAB, all cops are bastards, the anarchist dictum, um, I don't think anyone is saying that every single human being who happens to have chosen to be a cop is seethingly evil and born evil and irredeemably evil. The question is what, what policing is. It's an institution. Um, the uniform comes to stand for something because it is, I mean, that's the very meaning of uniform. Um, and as a uniformed force, uh, the history of policing in America has been one of racism and unendingly so from its birth in the as a sort of slave patrol to, uh, you know, war on drugs, stop and frisk, uh, the, the way in which policing was used to uphold Jim Crow laws. So to say all cops are bastards is to say policing is a racist institution. And so those who partake in it are partaking in a violent institution. Uh, it doesn't mean that every single cop is exactly the same and has exactly the same attitude. But whenever you're talking about something like racism, the least interesting part of it is, or the least important part of it, is singular people's well-meanings and intentions. It's how institutions functions, function and uphold certain systems and status quo. And clearly, policism, policing is a primary function of upholding white supremacy. And 
Uh, I'm not expecting a New York Times magazine feature to say that. Uh, that's not really the role that the Grey Lady plays. But in the story that I was writing about, that purports to be holding a magnifying glass to failures in U.S. law enforcement and what informed those. It was all about how things were overlooked and how the wrong agenda was chosen and therefore law enforcement around the country, you know, messed up when it comes to white supremacy. And the central problem of an idea like that, that on the surface might seem okay, is that it misses that policing itself is the problem. The call was coming from inside the house. And that's not to say every single police department has been infiltrated by far-right neo-Nazi groups. But a lot of them have. And there are white supremacists um, and extremist white supremacists infiltrated into police departments. And I'm not just saying this like some sort of conspiracy theorist. This was information made plain in an FBI internal report. Um, the FBI has reckoned with, or at least noted, that white supremacist extremist infiltration is a problem in domestic policing. And that fact was not mentioned by the New York Times in an article about how federal law enforcement and on-the-ground local law enforcement had failed to stem the rise of the far right. So, you know, that to me, that to me just seems a willful oversight um, and a dangerous one because painting a picture of Republican agenda-driven feds and then sort of bumbling local law enforcement who maybe are a little too buddy-buddy with Nazis and a little too okay with white supremacy is very different from saying that's true and a lot of them are actually part of it. And then as a system, it is a racist one. Um, so, you know, not every racist is a neo-Nazi member of Identity Europa, but these things work in concert. And the fact that there are, in fact, FBI reports that have been made public about the fact of uh, white supremacist infiltration in police departments, and the New York Times decides to not include that, I just thought it was worth bringing attention to because a lot of people were also really, really happy with this New York Times magazine piece. You know, hooray, finally the New York Times is talking about um, taking white supremacy seriously. Finally, the New York Times isn't playing into this god-awful um, two-sidesism that it's really been doubling down on um, under Trump. Um, and it, it, to, to miss the central point about what policing does and is, it seems like a really big problem to me, if that's your story. Uh, I just got to say, Natasha, that is why I love having you on This Is Hell. That was an exceptional answer, and I really, really, truly appreciate every time you come on. And you write how uh, somehow in Reitman's uh, interrogation of the FBI dealing with far-right extremism in the New York Times, she fails to mention that the agency itself 
was internally investigating white supremacist infiltration in law enforcement. Then you quote The Intercept's Alice Sperry's reporting last year, which was based in part on a classified FBI counterterrorism policy guide from 2015 that noted that domestic terrorism investigations focused on militia extremists, white supremacist extremists, and sovereign citizen extremists often have identified active links to law enforcement. Now, you reached out to Reitman to see if she was aware of The Intercept's story or uh, on the FBI investigation of white supremacists infiltrating the police. And uh, you said that if she replied to you, you would, uh, you know, actually update if we if you heard back from her. Did you ever hear back from her on why she missed this? Um, so I did hear back from her, but she was really rude and was off the record. So um, I can't. <laughs> Say anything, um, but it, it you know it didn't it didn't go well. <laughs> I think I've had those conversations in the past. Yeah, I mean I shouldn't even say I've had it, but it went so on because you know if it's off the record, you're not even supposed to have never knew it existed. But she was so rude that actually I don't really mind mentioning the fact that she was incredibly rude and uh, did seem quite flustered and um, very much trying to say like you know how absurd to presume or to even suggest that this was any sort of malpractice um, in my piece that I've been reporting for a year. Um, and, so I, and again, a bit like a bit like policing, like I'm not interested in Janet Reitman's intention. Hmm. When, you put a, when you put a piece of journalism, any piece of writing, any kind of cultural posit out into the world, it has to stand on its own. Um, I mean, I think her intentions are also probably bad, but that's not what's interesting to me. What's interesting to me is that this is what the New York Times comes up with. Um, it's also baffling to me that this this long-form story allegedly took a year of worth of reporting, but a lot of the sources used are, you know, uh, files and documents that have already been public, like the one you mentioned that Alice Sperry it's a lead to, not Alice. Everyone gets that wrong. Okay. Italian. Um, uh, wrote about previously. And then she seemingly spoke to just a whole bunch of former cops, one in particular. And if that's a year worth of your reporting, I mean, you're probably just not very good at your job. Um, but I, again, I'm not particularly interested in what she wanted to do or even what was in the minds of the editor of the Times. What we have, to, what we have is the story on our hands once it's published. And it's stunning to me that that's what they could come up with. And that without noting explicitly the internal issues of white supremacy in policing, then you're not only, you're letting police off the hook whilst you're purporting to hold them to account. You're interested um, in the message, not the messenger. Right. And like, I think that's always true. I mean, I think death of the author is, relevant, not because I think we shouldn't look at the context of where and how things get to be produced, but if she meant to not write a stupid racist piece, I don't care because she wrote a stupid racist piece. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. So uh, why hasn't that story of the FBI investigating white supremacists within the law enforcement why hasn't that become a story in the mainstream corporate media? Because if there are white supremacists in the police, maybe that explains a lot of the murders of people of color by the police. It would seem like this would be an incredibly important story. Why is it that a, this broke in at The Intercept and not 
in the Washington Post or ABC Nightly News or whatever uh, mainstream media, what does it say to you about the media that this breaks in the intercept and not in the corporate mainstream media? Well, so I think a couple of things. So that particular internal document that got leaked um, and, uh, you know, the, the intercept got the leak. Uh, it is fair to say that, as Reitman posits, that the reason that that detail didn't get a lot of attention is because it, it ended up being a detail in the federal agenda. It's not like the feds are spending lots and lots and lots of time worrying about white supremacy. They, you know, noted that it was a problem and noted the infiltration was a problem. But, you know, it is still the case that dealing with white supremacy was very, very low on the federal agenda. Um, in terms of news reporting, um, I, you know, I, I would say it's it's an ongoing issue about when uh, mainstream media institutions talk about police and racism. They're they're still stuck in sort of the jargon of race related issue, uh, seemingly racially driven battle or something. They're like they're very unwilling to call anything racist per se. So policing is just the tip of that iceberg, um, and it's and it's not the case that because actual links between white supremacist groups and policing have been found that they can say every single police officer who shoots an unarmed young black person was therefore directly influenced by their buddy who goes to clan meetings that's much more of a structural problem of what how how police functions racistly who gets to be seen as a threat whose life gets to matter who gets to be grieved who gets to be disposable. Um, and of course, the fact that white supremacists infiltrate police forces and feel comfortable there speaks to that. But it's not, it, it's not that every time a young black kid gets killed by a cop, you're going to find that that cop signed up to clan meetings. So you can't tell that story again and again. And I think there was an okay-ish at times I'm often bad, but sometimes good, around the rise of Black Lives Matter, a willingness on the part of bigger media institutions or mainstream institutions to talk about police and racism and the systematic role that that plays in decimating black life. Uh, but the detail about white supremacy, and I, you know, there have also been mainstream stories about incidents. Right. So you've there's been stories about one detective who was found to have gone to neo-Nazi meetings, uh, one police department that was found to have spray painted swastikas on its locker room. There, these stories have come out in drips and drabs. Um, so it's just a question of why this particular detail about the internal FBI report noting it, um, it's, it was pushed away by everything. And I don't, and also I would say it's not, I don't think it even stood as groundbreaking. Like if I'd heard that detail, like, wow, the FBI noted in an internal document that um, there are white supremacists in policing. It almost feels like a no duh. Of course there's white supremacists in policing. Everybody knows that. Um, and we do see individual stories of that sort coming out quite a lot. Uh, so I don't know if the main problem here was why wasn't it made a huge deal that this internal document said that.
like I, I'm, I think there's bigger systems of not looking and naming racism at play in the media than, than that specific detail. So you write how Aliche, I got it right this time, Sperry's report cited numerous examples from the past decade of white supremacist police activity, including the case of a local sheriff's department in L.A. that was found to have formed a neo-Nazi gang in 1991, a Chicago detective and rumored KKK member who was found to have tortured 120 black men while on duty before eventually being fired and prosecuted, and cops in Cleveland who scrawled neo-Nazi graffiti in their locker rooms. Now, the Chicago detective you are referring to is John Burge, the cop who was prosecuted by our own law enforcement correspondent, Flint Taylor, who also represented uh, Fred Hampton's family in the police assassination of the Black Panther leader. So I asked Flint in an email if he ever came across anything connecting Burge to white supremacist groups because I've been following that story and I only vaguely remember any reference to Burge being a white supremacist in the mainstream media. Flint told me in an email that Burge and his crew of ass kickers, what they call themselves, were a deeply racist white supremacist gang with badges who grew up in changing neighborhoods in Chicago, were trained in Vietnam to dehumanize, kill, and torture people of color, and brought those skills and attitudes home to the South and later West Sides of Chicago by employing systematic racist torture on more than 120 suspects of color. To what extent do you believe or do you see a, a white supremacist pipeline from the military that flows into the police? Um, I, th- I think it's certainly fostered uh, something that America didn't need fostering anyway. Like, I don't think, I don't think America was absent of uh, the white supremacy that sits at its core um, before wars in the Middle East. Of course not. Um, I think, as your friend wrote, it, serving in the military can do a very good job of reaffirming or establishing an us versus them mentality, especially under the war on terror, where the them was posited as an entire race of people, um, and in, an entire ideology that um, was able to be posited as seething and growing everywhere. Um, so I think those factors are at play a lot. Um, you know, it's it's not a biconditional. It's not if you're a racist, you've been a vet. And if you're a vet, you're a racist. Quite the opposite. I mean, and, and so many veterans are treated so appallingly in this country, like a quarter of homeless people are vets. Um, and I often think it's not people's fault that they end up in the army. Um, That said, there are obviously (laughs) operations at play that feed in or can feed in to xenophobia and racism um, and nationalism, of course. Um, Nationalism being very central to that and this feeling of of whiteness and Americanness and Europeanness being embattled and under threat. uh, Militaristic narratives very much play into that. And what was tricky um, about public opinion around veterans was that when the FBI did, at certain points, uh, suggest that there was some sort of pipeline into white supremacist extremism from soldiers coming back from war, uh, that was like, people re- Republicans in Congress said that that was so distasteful. Um, and so disgraceful to say that um, they ended up, Dan Napolitano had ended up having to retract and apologize to the troops. Uh, God forbid you find a statistic that doesn't settle well with our idea of the troops, but obviously makes a lot of sense. Um, so that's another reason there was a an active 
which and this is in the New York Times story too, that there was an active turning away from the problem of white supremacy because when it was brought up, um, no one wanted it didn't it didn't suit troop loving agendas. Um and war on terror upholding agendas to say this is actually part of the problem. So that 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 being the case was actually an issue and a public relations issue in terms of the government citing what where the white supremacist organization organizing was coming and who is who is taking part in it. But um you know, we didn't need the war on terror or the Vietnam War to create um active homegrown white supremacist racists. Uh you write as if to provide an example of how to do this kind of writing the day before the Times magazine story went live. The Washington Post published an article that detailed the system systemic racism and misconduct of the police department in Little Rock, Arkansas, including the hiring of an officer who had attended a KKK meeting and went on to shoot dead a 15-year-old black child in 2012. The story of this uh, officer, the Post Radley Balco wrote, who's a past guest on our show, isn't one of the rogue uh, aberrant cop so much as a glimpse into the police culture of Arkansas's largest city. We've had Radley on the show a couple of times in the past to talk about law enforcement, and we receive some negative emails every time he's on, not about what he's saying on law enforcement, but his critics dislike his libertarian politics. But we, and that's not the only opinion piece, uh, as it was labeled in the post, that Radley has uh, written of late for the post on the Little Rock Police. He also uh, posted the article, Little Rock's uh, Dangerous and Illegal Drug War, which shows how Little Rock cops violate the rules and involving no-knock search warrants, which they universally use in all suspected drug cases. The first time I read about this was in your writing, so I was wondering if the post-investigation made it into the corporate mainstream media, and sure enough, it didn't. Uh, What happened was the Arkansas Times had asked the Washington Post permission to report its work, but was told the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, as a subscriber to the news service, intended to use it. So we the, that uh, newspaper could not. The Arkansas Times could not. And as of mid-November, they still had not reported it. To what extent do you think people are aware of not just the history, but the kind of actions of the police department today that might suggest or signal that they are full of, or not full of, but uh, affected by white supremacy. How aware is the public of the white supremacist role in the police department? I mean, I think a huge chunk of the public who's getting stopped, frisked, thrown in jail, um, has their parents and brothers and sisters afraid and shot, um, or, you know, are immigrants afraid of being turned into ICE. I mean, I think a lot of the population is goddamn aware of how racist the police are because that's the reality that many, many people live in. So they don't need a newspaper to tell them that the police are racist. Um, If we're talking about the New York Times' presumed readership that isn't that population, that looks and sounds a lot more like me, um, except less English. Um, And then then I do think, um, yes, I do think there is, a, a, a willingness to not address it in the public and uh, a, a willful ignorance, perhaps, um, which just speaks to the fact that people who aren't personally touched by something and living in a segregated society um, aren't necessarily going to uh, know about it and be interested in it. And that's usually and often who the mainstream newspapers are serving, even if they say they don't. I mean, all the news that's fit to print for whom. Um, And yeah, so I do think 
it's it's often pushed off the agenda of uh, newsrooms, uh, especially at a time when liberal centrists just want to talk about like Trump and Russia um, and scramble for the kind of smoking gun towards impeachment as opposed to looking at structural problems, which is not to say it doesn't sometimes happen. The Washington Post has done a decent job on, um, which it won a Pulitzer Prize for, on keeping numerical track of police killings. So has The Guardian. Um, There have been really good pieces on white supremacy that have garnered recognition. Rachel Cadiganza's piece on on Dylan Roof comes to mind. Um, But it's always just going to be something that goes in and out of news interest because it's not usually treated as uh, a priority when Trump could have said something. And that's also true of other things that informed also by race and class are killing people and we kill, will be killing all the more people, environmental stories, things like that. Um, the news has not got its priorities right and almost rarely does. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure the the answer is necessarily. Wow, you know, if if white middle class and upper middle class people knew about it, then it would stop. Um, I don't think that's true. I don't think knowledge is power, um, or I don't think truth speaks to power. Um, so I, I don't think the issue is. Oh shit! If only the New York Times readers really knew how racist the police were, then they would do something about it. Like I don't think that's true um because it isn't not you know we might not know all a lot of details don't get reported a lot of the extent of things don't get reported uh but if if anyone's paying any attention to the news at all it would be insane to suggest that they wouldn't get a sense that police engage in racist killings or race-driven killings as the new york times or the washington post would like to put it um all the time and so that's not really, it's not really an excuse. And I think drawing, making people not be able to look away was the important work done by the Ferguson Rebellion, by the protesters in Baltimore, by everyone who was out in the streets and shut things down in the name of Black Lives Matter. Um, the whole way that worked resonantly was that it did make it have to be a news story. Um, maintaining that attention is obviously difficult, but like that was an incredible intervention. It wasn't that suddenly the media were like, oh, actually, you know what would be really, really ethical and correct of us to start looking at the issues of structural racism and how many um, people of color are being killed by police. Um, that was something the media responded to when Black Lives Matter demanded that people not look away um so uh the yeah there's the um media theorist called nick mertzoff who is excellent on this stuff and he writes about the necessity of persistent looking not just noticing um but persistent looking when atrocities like mike brown's death happen um and the demanding that we we stay with that and we don't move on and don't move on with the news cycle and we don't look away and i think that is a lot of the work of um, Black Lives Matter protests, but um, ups and downs is with regards to the media actually 
engaging and persistent looking. You write that uh, Reitman's New York Times piece mentions that police have shown a tendency to target Black Lives Matter protesters above neo-Nazis, but declines to mention that Black Lives Matter, the central anti-racist movement of our time, is a movement against racist police brutality. Reitman's uh, piece reads as if the message of Black Lives Matter, that white supremacy undergirds U.S. policing, has fallen on deaf ears. To you, what does that reveal about the way in which either Reitman or the editors at the time view Black Lives Matter? Because in the Times, even when reporting on an organization whose mission and message are, are, are well known, they give qualifying identifiers like pro-environment Sierra Club or humanitarian <laughs> Red Cross. So what does it reveal to you about the reporting when a mention of an organization goes without any defining characteristics of that group's goals? Well, I just, I can almost imagine the process of a story like this, this kind of overwhelming excitement that they're doing something about what the federal government got wrong, and it just funneling along um, almost without kind of stopping and looking around being like, what, you know, we're, we're writing about racism and policing, why aren't we talking about racism and policing? Um, and I think that can happen in uh, the editorial process and um, you know, not being particularly reflective when you have one story in mind. Um, you know, I I don't know what why uh, I don't I don't know again, and I'm not that interested in the intentions of why this this story that was so praised came out the way it did. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I don't. I can't answer that. <laughs> Uh, Just one last question for you, Natasha. We've been speaking with writer and political analyst Natasha Leonard. She's the author of the article, Even the FBI Thinks Police Have Links to White Supremacists But Don't Tell the New York Times, which was posted at The Intercept. Natasha's book, Violence, Humans in Dark Times, which she co-wrote with Brad Evans, was just released this week by City Lights. And I really hope to have you back on the show very soon so we can talk to you about that book and talk with Brad as well. You can follow Natasha on Twitter at Natasha Leonard. That's L-E-N-N-A-R-D. As always, our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write for an investigation with the alleged purpose of unveiling the whys of law enforcement's treatment of white supremacy. It is more than an oversight to ignore that the call has been coming from inside the house. I love that phrase. It is journalistic malpractice. So what can be done to motivate elected representatives to seriously challenge the role that white supremacist organizations play in law enforcement to take institutional racism and hate out of the police? Or can nothing be done as we are all held hostage by white supremacists and law enforcement who are protected by the local fraternal order of police? Um, I, I, you know, I have an abolitionist stance on this. I don't think you can fix policing. I think you can dismantle it, um, maybe not all at once. Um, that wouldn't be an easy agenda item for, <laughs> for um, people to take to Congress. But I do think um, having the imaginary in which we don't rely on police for the idea of order and uh, social wellness is what we need. We don't need better police. We need fewer police.
And let me just follow up on that real quick, because the Little Rock Fraternal Order of Police, we were talking about the Little Rock Arkansas Police and some of their uh, racist and white supremacist, uh, either past or uh, contemporary times, uh, had to take down a tweet that was determined to be insensitive while openly endorsing the white candidate for Little Rock mayor, as they usually do against the black candidate. There's going to be a runoff uh, election and all that kind of stuff. But how much is the problem with what you and others see as white supremacist infiltration of law enforcement due to police unions? Um, well, I mean, it, it goes so hand in hand. Um, you know, I don't think I don't think we would have a lack of white supremacy in policing if there hadn't been police unions. But police unions are um, represent and then reaffirm the ide- ideological core of what policing gets to be. Um, and that is always profoundly racist. Um, and if you want to see what ideology undergirds policing, read the press releases from police unions. Um, but do I think we'd fix policing by taking away the political power of their unions? No, I mean, I do think that the, the power police unions have over politicians is troubling um, and should definitely be kept in serious check, but that would be, you know, a band-aid over a bullet wound. Um, sorry to use quite a apt metaphor, but, um, you know, that would, it, it would help. And I don't think police unions should have the power they have politically. Um, but it, it would only be a marginal aid if it's not part of a broader abolitionist project. Natasha, again, thank you so much for being back on our show, and I'm going to be annoying you an email to get you back on the show with Brad so we can talk about your new book. Great. Thank you so much. Take care, Natasha. Bye-bye. Truly revolting radio, this is hell. Over the last 50 years, historians have made great progress in uncovering the purposely erased history of African Americans. That said, we still get so much of it wrong. Popular culture has spindled and manipulated black history into something That it's not, we'll learn the history that is still being ignored when, in a few minutes, we talk to historian Pero G. Dagbovi, author of Reclaiming the Black Past, the Use and Misuse of African American History in the 21st Century. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In 1934, 84 years ago, Sergei Kirov, a member of the Soviet Politburo, veteran of the Bolshevik Revolution, and personal friend of Joseph Stalin, in other words, a total prick, was assassinated by Leonid Nikolaev, a disgruntled ex-Communist Party member who suspected his wife of having an affair with Kirov, and who showed up at Kirov's Leningrad office with a loaded revolver. After the shooting, Nikolaev was arrested along with his wife, his elderly mother, and several family members, all of whom were executed because Stalin was a murderous jag with my apologies to all you hardworking tankies out there. Stalin's allies in the Politburo accused opposition figures within the party of complicity in the assassination, but some historians today believe the killing was secretly ordered by Stalin, who had reason to view the increasingly popular Kirov as a political threat. See, 
I told you Stalin was a tool. In any case, Stalin seized the moment as a chance to purge or to eliminate uh, opposition to his rule and initiated the Great Purge, in which over the next two years, more than a million government officials, Bolshevik revolutionaries, military officers, intellectuals, and others were accused of counter-revolutionary activities and were arrested, tortured, and executed, often without trial. Yes! The Red Tsar, as Stalin was known, was a murderous, megalomaniac ass. But damn, that's an incredible mustache. What's with mass-murdering European leaders from that era all having distinctive facial hair, especially right under their nose? And, and why didn't FDR keep up in the mustache race? You figure a dude like him would have one of those uh, near-handlebar jobs, like... Uh, Rich Uncle Pennybags has on the Monopoly board game. By the way, did you know Rich Uncle Pennybags' first name was Milburn and that Parker Brothers changed his name in 1999 to the oh-so-clever Mr. Monopoly? Yeah, I didn't either. And I'm pretty sure that useless trivia just pushed some important information out of my finite brain. Damn it, what were we just saying about Stalin? In Rotten History, 1958, 60 years ago, fire broke out in the basement of Our Lady of the Angels, a Catholic elementary school of some 1,600 students in the Humboldt Park neighborhood of Chicago. And thanks to our researcher, Ronaldo, for reminding me of this friggin' horror. As the fire spread, it ignited petroleum-based wax and other materials that gradually filled the building with toxic smoke. Because what can go wrong when you wax your floors with gasoline? Meanwhile, evacuation of the school was delayed by various communication mishaps, and the school's fire alarm system failed to work properly, which is weird when you consider the deep pockets of the Roman Catholic Church. Hundreds of children soon found themselves trapped inside the burning building, with no clear means of escape. By the time firefighters arrived, after having been mistakenly sent to the wrong address... Really? How about just looking for the church that's on fire? I mean, how wrong was the address? The blaze was out of control. Parts of the building were collapsing, and children were jumping from second-floor windows with their hair and clothing on fire. By the time the fire was out, 92 children were dead, along with three nuns. A board of inquiry later charged the Chicago Archdiocese with failure to bring the old school building up to modern fire safety standards. You'd think that a church founded on the teachings of Jesus Christ would prioritize stuff like the safety of their children. But remember, this is the Catholic Church. They apparently have a long history of really not caring about the safety of children. In Rotten History, 1974, 44 years ago, two Boeing 727 passenger jets experienced fatal accidents on the same day. TWA Flight 514, en route from Indianapolis, encountered bad weather on its approach to Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C., and crashed in the top of a mountain. All 92 people aboard were killed. A few hours later, another 727, this one operated by Northwest Airlines, crashed northwest of New York's JFK Airport, killing all three crew members. The chartered jet had been sent to Buffalo, New York to pick up the Baltimore Colts football team. The crash was later attributed to instrument malfunction and pilot error. Ten years later, the Colts would leave Baltimore, moving the franchise to Indianapolis in the dead of night. And they didn't fly. They left in huge moving trucks. 
That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. And this week's question from Hell is, what $50 maximum gift should Chuck request from his secret Santa? What $50 maximum gift should Chuck request from his secret Santa? All replies read on air during the next hour of this week's show, and I promise I will actually request the gift suggested by the winning response. This week's winner will get, well, it's a surprise. Again, the question from hell is, what $50 maximum gift should Chuck request from his secret Santa? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen during the next hour of this week's hell to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, misreading black history, the battle between the American dream and America first, our fantasized view of Africa. During a moment of truth, Jeff answers the question, what have we become? All that stuff, plus listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. I'll tell you what happened on this week's and last week's Patreon podcast of This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We also want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Who's kidding who? We're not getting to twist off knowledge. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell. Our Leo O'Connell and Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity and talk radio. So clearly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. There's plenty we get wrong about black history. And there's lots of reasons why. Here to explain what we get wrong and how we get it wrong and why historian Pero G. Dagbovi is author of Reclaiming the Black Past, The Use and Misuse of African-American History in the 21st Century. Welcome to This is Hell, Pero. Thank you very much. Pero is University Distinguished Professor of History and Associate Dean in the Graduate School at Michigan State University. And he's the incoming editor of the Journal of American African-American History for 2019, which is an amazing journal. Next year, the journal's editorial board will include past This Is Hell guests Keisha Blaine and Ibram X. Kendi. And the current editorial board includes a couple of past guests as well, Robin D.G. Kelly and Gerald Horn. Pero's most recent books, uh, most recent uh, book, yes, books prior to Reclaiming the Black History's Past are 2015's What is African-American History, and 2014's Carter G. Woodson in Washington, D.C., The Father of Black History. You write about when someone meets you for the first time, and they ask, what do you do? And you respond that you are a university professor in history, and they ask, what area? You respond, American history. And when they pursue the topic further, you say, black history, and the common refrain is, oh, during the introduction, I described you as historian Parodagbovi, not black historian Parodagbovi or historian of African American history Parodagbovi. What do you think the common view, the conventional wisdom is when it comes to what black history is and its relationship not only to U.S. history, but all history? Why, why do you think the person who says, oh, to black history, what do you think he's, they're really saying? Well, um, it usually depends on who I'm speaking with, but I think that the quote-unquote O stems from the fact that when I inform people that I'm a historian, many things begin popping in their heads, i.e. the most immediate things that come to their mind when they think of history or U.S. history. And when I say black history, if the person, which is most often the case, does not know much about black history, there's 
kind of a pause in the conversation. Um, in other words, some people don't feel comfortable talking about an experience that they're most likely not that familiar with. And on top of that, they usually don't want to make some type of mistake or error by saying something, quote-unquote, inappropriate about the black experience that might be interpreted by me in a certain manner. Um, oftentimes, I'm also in my street clothes um, when I'm talking to people about my profession. And as an African-American man, sometimes folks are uh, sometimes set aback when I say that I'm a professional historian, a scholar, um, if they see me outside of the setting of academia. So do you think that there is, uh, like when you're talking to somebody who is white, do you think that they have a sense, a, a feeling of guilt in that, and or that they are going to be blamed personally for black history? Do you think that has some undergirding of that kind of response of, oh, I mean, it's possible, depending on who I'm speaking with, but most often, depending on the generation of the individual, the response of O is usually just a lack of concrete information. And I usually just continue to talk to folks in in that type of uh, situation, and they'll share with me all sorts of historical facts about the U.S. experience in general. And since I'm a generalist in U.S. history, I can carry on the conversation but again, most often times when people think of black history, if you were just to say black history to different types of people and ask what comes to mind, usually people might come up with a list of historical icons we celebrate all the time from Rosa Parks to Martin Luther King Jr. Or on the other side, they might think of the more quote-unquote darker side of the black experience, that is slavery, Jim Crow segregation, a deep amount of oppression. And most people don't want to engage in those types of conversations for various reasons. You write how it's not uncommon for your new acquaintance to share with you a book, usually authored by a journalist with whom I am not familiar, that they have recently read or a documentary that they saw on the History Channel, A&E, American History TV, Military History, and from time to time on PBS. Now, just to speak again a little bit about history more generally, to what extent do you think the common understanding of history in general is today based on popular history, that is, pop history and how it is retold in commercial mainstream media. And isn't watching the Hitler channel, I mean, the History Channel, better than not having any understanding of history whatsoever? I I think it is better um, to acquire knowledge of history in some way. Most Americans, um, even university-age students, do not spend a lot of time reading historical monographs authored by professional historians, especially by those professional historians who do not write for a lay audience. So most Americans, in my estimation, are going to get their information about history online, from blogs, from documentaries, from Hollywood films. And I guess at one level, that's better than nothing, as long as the recipient of this information is a critical thinker and will take the time to go and investigate further the sources of information that they learn about and come up with their own critical in- interpretation. But again, let's face it, if we look at the average workday of most people and the average day of most people and what they have to do during those days, oftentimes we don't have time to sit down 
and read scholarship in great detail. As we all know, you can't understand history by reading one book or by watching one documentary. You have to be willing to engage with a broader historiography, that is, the writings on any topic, to be able to come up with a nuanced interpretation of what might have supposedly occurred in the past. That takes time, that takes patience, and it takes critical thinking. And so I think a good starting point is by dealing with that surface-level information, but we got to dig deeper. we got to try and leave um, no stones unturned. And it takes time and investment. You write that contemporary black culture permeates through American life, but black history does not explicitly shape most Americans' worldviews. The past experiences of black Americans, especially during the troublesome eras of slavery and Jim Crow segregation, do not make for friendly, lighthearted topics of conversation, as you were saying. So why is African-American history especially important to examine as it appears in black pop culture and fine arts? And and does this also apply to Latinx, uh, Asian-Americans, even women's history and their correlating cultural production? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think everyone's history, all different types of people, groups, etc., is important. Um, I used to teach a general U.S. survey course, U.S. history since 1976, and it was a massive lecture course, and it was probably the most challenging course, at least one of them that I had to teach, because I just didn't want to do the top-down political history of the United States, focusing on the presidency or broader policies that shape Americans' lives. I wanted to try to incorporate the experiences of everybody. So then you got to think about all the different ethnic groups, all the different classes, et cetera, that you know, make up this quote-unquote melting pot of American history, and you realize you can't do that in a semester. Um, so it becomes very, very challenging. Um, I think that every group can offer something to a broader narrative. And African Americans are one of many groups that make up American culture and society. However, if you go back to the period of slavery, you know, um, the introduction of African Americans into, you know, the United States as it will become after the ratification of the Constitution, you will notice that economically, socially, politically, African Americans have influenced this country in massive ways. Um, and it's easy to see that in popular culture, from music to sports to entertainment. There seems to be this love-hate relationship, if you will, with Black America. Um, its influence as a culture on American society cannot be denied, yet at the same time, there is a reluctance to oftentimes acknowledge that past or even that present. And I think it's uncomfortable for some people to talk about days of oppression in U.S. history related to African Americans because people don't want to acknowledge in some cases the connections of the past to the present. I always argue that the present, and this isn't rocket science or anything, is a byproduct of the past however that past is defined, whether that's yesterday, an hour ago, three months ago, a hundred years ago, or 400 years ago, that we exist in this present moment as a byproduct of everything that's happened before. And so you can explain most phenomenon in a contemporary context by looking at the past. And you can do that with African Americans very clearly. Um, people who have problems understanding 
contemporary debates in African-American culture or the African-American condition, if you will, in the 21st century, all you have to do is go back and look at the past, and you'll see that the present status is inextricably bound to a past that goes back all the way to 1619, quote-unquote, and earlier. That's that's fascinating. I, I want to talk a little bit more about um, the, the issues that we may have with just looking at history. And you write, for a host of reasons, the numbers of young Americans earning bachelor's degrees in history in the digital-centric 21st century is steadily declining. And you point out that cognitive psychologist and history education expert Sam Weinberg and others have argued people's lack of enthusiasm toward, enthusiasm toward the uh, study of history is in part related to how they were taught history in secondary school. Most weren't yeah. and still aren't taught the value of thinking historically or the benefits of unraveling a usable past for those who did not study history past secondary school. What is the value of thinking historically and what are the benefits of unraveling a usable past? Yeah, history should not be taught as um, a corpus of facts. You know, it should not be taught through the method of memorization, and regurgitation. It should be taught, um, and Weinberg talks about this in terms of thinking historically, as your attempt, to the best of your ability, to make sense of what happened, what was said and done in the past, by hopefully having the ability, without a time machine, to place yourself within various historical context. And we all know that this involves thinking imaginatively and also looking at primary documents, material sources, etc., from that time period that you're looking at. I think thinking historically requires a deep imagination, critical thinking, and trying to put yourself in other people's shoes. These are transferable skills that can be used by anyone when dealing with any type of contemporary situation. And building upon the ideas of many other historians, I'm a firm believer that we all think historically every day, whether or not we realize it. Lose our keys? Where did I put my keys? We have to engage in some type of thinking historically to track back to figure out where we might have left them. So I think that, you know, this this skill of thinking historically can be used um, every day, and it actually is used every day. And then if we expand that to the notion of looking at the past as a, you know, type of major or a type of profession, it can become much more important and relevant. Um, every presidential cabinet, for example, has historians most of the time who work with them to see, quote-unquote, best practices from the past, how they compare with the present, etc. And then we can learn from the past. I, I don't believe in that dictum that history repeats itself. But I do believe that by looking at the past and seeing what happened in the past, it can help us decipher the present as long as we're aware of the new causal factors and changes that are happening in our present at the time. And you write that U.S. high school history, often subsumed under the broad and elusive category of social studies, is regularly reduced to the memorization of so-called facts and important names and dates. Time and time again, high school students are expected to demonstrate their historical knowledge by taking multiple-choice fill-in and short-answer tests based upon so-called objective information. So, so so-called objective information. Let's just stay there for a second. How is that process not objective? What is the impact of yeah. attempted objectivity on a student's right. understanding of history. 
historians strive to be objective. You know, we strive to the best of our ability. Of course, it's impossible to be 100% objective, whatever that means. We all have inherent biases based upon our upbringing, etc. Um, there's a historian by the name of Edward Halleck Carr who wrote one of my favorite books, What is History? And he was a British historian, I think, of the Russian Revolution. Um, but he talked about the notion that facts are only facts because historians have co-signed upon them being facts. And that when these facts get elevated as facts, we all tend to agree with them and sometimes don't even question whether or not they're facts. Um, it's kind of like Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolution, when we all agree that scientific paradigms rule until another paradigm comes and replaces it. A lot of those paradigms or ways of thinking are in those positions, just like facts, by virtue of those who are the gatekeepers keeping them as facts and co-signing on them. And so what I mean by that is that, you know, we, we present these, these, these facts to students with sometimes out even questioning whether or not they're real facts. I got an email the other day from a historian who's setting up some uh, new website to check Wikipedia, <laughs> saying that a lot of the facts on uh, Wikipedia are not accurate. And we've all known this. But again, um, it speaks to that notion of people thinking that history is just about supposedly knowing what happened in these facts. And people don't think about how they became facts and why they became facts. And once you begin to question that, then you're questioning the whole profession. And that's why I agree with folks like Edward Halleck Carr that history is interpretation, just like many other disciplines. But I don't mean to belittle the field by saying that. Because those of us who are historians come up with our interpretations, hopefully based upon objectivity and thorough examinations. And I'll end by saying this. I've had massive classes, and I can't afford to read hundreds of papers that students submit. So I do fall in the trap of time to time providing my students with multiple test questions or multiple guest questions, whatever you want to call them. And I always say to my students that if the question is unfair to you, write in the margins whatever you know about the topic that's being asked about. And I'll consider it, because I think that we should allow people to think out of the box and to interpret things in their own ways as long as they have engaged with their historical material. While you're uh, responding to that question, I was wondering... Does does the strive or the drive, whatever you want to call it, for objectivity have the same kind of effect on the study of history as it does on journalism and the strive and drive for objectivity within journalism? Do you see any kind of correlation between the two? I know you're not a journalist, but do you see yeah. a correlation between the two? I would hope so. Uh, one of the key differences is that Journalists usually have to produce their quote-unquote knowledge and writings um, under the clock, right? They have an article or a blog that's due, and they have a short period of time to generate something. So it doesn't allow them, in some cases, to be as quote-unquote thorough. However, journalists, those committed journalists, um, have some type of, you know, responsibility to not offer interpretations 
or to state the quote-unquote facts without having done due diligence. And I would say that historians can benefit um, in a different way because we have much more time usually to produce documents. I mean, I know that someone can probably read my book and question certain things and say, wait a second, you didn't look at this source, or there's this other source that you could look at. And I would say that's fine, because I had to produce this book under a certain time period. I I, I wrote this book in about three years, and since I'm in administration, I usually did a lot of it during my breaks or during the summer. But I went over things over and over again, and the problem was for me that because I was writing about contemporary phenomenon, things would happen while I was writing the book, and I'd have to add a section on it. So I think that when we strive for objectivity, it just means putting in the time and and not avoiding dealing with certain sources because they don't cooperate our so-called argument. Because we can make arguments, but we can't make genuine arguments without including all of the different perspectives that are valid to what we're discussing. Uh, to what degree, then, does an attempt at objective history, let's say, you know, uh, K through 12, kindergarten through 12th grade, uh, to what uh-huh. to what uh, degree does an attempt at objective, uh, object, objective history erase black history from U.S. history? Is discussing the role African Americans have played in history, is that discussion in and of itself viewed as political and therefore not objective history? You know, it really depends on, on who's delivering that information and how they do it. I have three kids, and they're all in college now, and they all, of course, went to elementary school, middle school, and high school. And I've written about this um, in articles. I oftentimes was challenged with what they were taught and how they were taught it. And um, I know it's sometimes challenging to teach young people complex or controversial issues, but there's a way to do it. Kids are smarter than we think, especially those of the millennial or I generation. And I think that there should be a commitment to present things in a balanced way, keeping in mind the historical context. Um, I remember one time my son came home and was talking about, you know, George Washington and the the presentation was that very generic presentation. And, um, you know, like most founding fathers and early Americanist presidents, there, you know, was slaveholding that was active and folks supported slavery, as you can see in the Constitution. And I brought that up to my son, and he went and told the teacher, and the teacher responded to him, quote-unquote, yeah, George Washington had some issues. And, uh, again, that would be an opportunity to explain you know, what American society was like at the time, that this was a society that, you know, thrived on slavery and, and justified it in different ways. And that was a debate, that not everyone agreed with it, that there were abolitionists. So you can present these things, again, in a manner that can be, quote-unquote, more accurate and can challenge young people to think through things. You shouldn't leave a history class like, oh, I got it. I memorized everything. You should actually leave a history class or leave a book that you've written even confused (laughs) because the past is messy and you will never ultimately know exactly what happened, even if you were actually there. Because if you were there, it's just your interpretation and other people there might have viewed it a different way. 
So to make a long answer short, history is messy and it should be just like life. So to what extent does our understanding of history differentiate black and white culture? I was trying to figure out how I could phrase this question actually yeah. better. Is is the white understanding of history and the black understanding of history yeah. so different that it leads to a greater inability for us to connect across racial lines? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, and I don't know if I would phrase it like that, but I understand what you're saying. Um, uh, think about it in this way, for example. Um, before um, African Americans integrated predominantly white universities in the civil rights era and in the post-civil rights era, there was really not a serious integration, quote-unquote, or any attention paid to African American history and the black experience in history departments and courses for the most part. In historically black colleges and universities, black history was oftentimes taught. So what ended up happening was that when thousands of African American students started um, enrolling in these predominantly white universities during the civil rights and post civil rights era, they demanded that courses be taught about their experiences. And these were manifested in black studies programs and history was a core discipline in black studies. So black history courses were oftentimes taught. And what ended up happening was the creation of these parallel courses, right? If you want to learn about black history, take a black history course. If you want to learn about black history, don't necessarily take a U.S. history course. So I think that that's part of the problem is we have this dichotomy. We have this notion of if you want to study black history, Unless you have a progressive U.S. history professor, most of the time they're only going to discuss black people during what? Slavery, Reconstruction, the Harlem Renaissance, and the Civil Rights Movement. And that would usually be in the shaded box or in passing. If you really want to learn about black history, take a African-American history course. And so it's, it's, it's separate. And there are people like Nathan Huggins and Benjamin Quarles from back in the day, black historians, who would argue that African-American history is part of the fabric of the United States. And so when we teach about U.S. history in general, that's include all different groups. And given how African-Americans have contributed um, particularly economically, socially, politically, that story should be woven in to the American past. There should not be a reason to have to have National African American History Month, but there still seems to be a purpose in this annual commemoration because of the lack of attention that is paid to African American history, and this is reflected in academic circles as well. And I've done the research on this. If you look at like the normative journals, and in, in many cases, um, in the historical profession, they do not oftentimes publish a lot of stuff on African-American history. That's why you have the Journal of African-American History that was founded in 1916. It's because the, you know, standard journals in U.S. history did not publish stuff on the black experience. And so I don't know if this is ever going to change, um, but it does need to change. And that's why those who teach African-American history have to be able to present the black experience to different audiences and recognize who it is that they're dealing with. You know, the identities of your students 
will certainly impact how they go about interpreting the black experience. And you, as a teacher and professor in that area, really need to be cognizant of that if you want to be effective. And that can be very challenging. And as you were saying, the Journal of African American uh, History, that began in 1916. Yet we view the study of black history as something new, something that only really uh, started only maybe 50 years ago in the 1960s when it started being incorporated into college curricula. So uh, what happens to our understanding of whether it's black history, Latinx history, Asian American, Native American, women's, all of the histories that have been ignored by white historians in the past. What happens to our understanding of all those histories, but especially black history, when its study at least, let's say, comes of age in an era when history has been strikingly impacted by popular culture, as you write in your book? I think that those who are engaged in teaching, let's focus on African-American history, need to really, and that's part of my argument, pay attention to how this experience is being portrayed in those spaces outside of the ivory tower. And that's why, for example, let's just say, you know, portrayals of black history in Hollywood films. And that goes to my chapter number three. Um, I go to uh, see movies for entertainment. I used to get a little upset when there'd be films that are based on history that would provide inaccurate portrayals, but it doesn't bother me as much anymore because I don't expect Hollywood films to accurately portray the past. However, we have to know that in contemporary times that many young people are influenced by these representations. So we need to go look at those films and be able to discuss them, break them down, the pros and the cons, with our students so that they understand things better. Um, Since my book came out, there's several other Hollywood films that have come out that I would probably add to that chapter on, you know, portrayals of black history in Hollywood. We have the Green Book film that's coming out that's, you know, rooted in the 1960s, and we also have the Black Klansman, Spike Lee's movie, uh, based upon, quote-unquote, true events of the 1970s. So we need to go see these films and need to engage with our students about them, the pros and cons, because I don't argue they should just be thrown out as historical documents. I argue that they can be used in positive ways as points of departure for further discourse and debate. So we just have to keep up with what's going on. Um, It's just like if you are from a certain generation and want to be in conversation with another generation if you're from the older generation, you have to be willing <laughs> to engage with that culture that's influencing that generation. I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a hip hop fan, and I came of age during the so-called golden age of hip hop, and I have kids and students who are coming up in this new age of hip hop that the old heads like to call mumble rap in a denigrating type of manner. I don't approach it like that. I try to the best of my ability, to listen to the music, to understand it, and see how that influences the worldview of that generation that is consuming it. And oftentimes I end up liking the music, (laughs) give or take a few here and there. So uh, just as an aside, um, if you, (coughs) excuse me, if you had, um, if you're still working on this book or maybe, (coughs) excuse me, in an addenda in the future, 
did you see the movie Boots Riley's movie? Sorry to bother you because we had Boots on the show, and I was just curious how you felt about that. Yeah, um, sorry to bother you. Was an interesting film for me. I saw it, I believe, in New York City, and um, I had a hard time following it. And maybe I'm not um, a film studies person, um, but it did speak, I believe, to a certain generation. And I've talked to younger people who got more out of it than I did. Um, I don't know if I necessarily would have included that film because it's not rooted in a deep historical analysis, but it did have some topics that could be explored further. Um, I liken it to Spike Lee's Bamboozled. I remember when Bamboozled came out around the dawning of the 21st century, and there were so many people who left the film screening when I was watching it because they didn't really understand it. And in order to see that film, Bamboozled by Spike Lee, you have to have some historical consciousness. Um, The film you referred to is a different type of analysis. Um, And so I don't want to get too deeply into that film because um, I saw it some time ago. (laughs) and um, I just remember feeling confused at the end, but understanding from my perspective this certain notions of representation and class that were um, being communicated, at least to me. And uh, you write some of today's uh, millennial and post-millennial black activists have explicitly situated themselves within a history of black struggle. Founded in the summer of 2013, Black uh, Lives Matter movement has actively sampled from past black freedom struggles. How misunderstood is the Black Lives Matter movement by those who do not know or were not taught or had no access to black history? Yeah, it's probably, I can't speak for folks like that, but it's probably very misinterpreted. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement is nothing more than an extension of a broader black freedom struggle that goes back centuries. Um, and if you study history long enough, you'll notice that during every major period or every major phase, there are new organizations that step forward and fight for similar rights within different historical time periods and landscapes. So much of what the Black Lives Matter movement is doing is building upon a struggle and addressing struggles within a contemporary time, if we're looking at right now. And what I talk about in my book about them is that they, yes, explicitly draw inspiration from past African-American activists, specifically during the civil rights movement, but at the same time, they do not become prisoners to that ideology. They have adjusted it to the contemporary situation. But they do use similar strategies, such as marches, um, speaking, publications, mass action. But they do that within a new realm, (laughs) the realm of social media, right? The realm of this high technological era that we're living in. On Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, the mainstream media always covers the commemoration by replaying footage of Dr. King, typically including 
clips of him saying things like, I have seen the mountaintop or I have a dream, while ignoring what could be called his more radical, even militant ideas that were part of the Poor People's Campaign, including his criticism of capitalism and his opposition to war. To what extent does the mainstream media de-radicalize, if you will, Dr. King or black history in general? And more importantly, what does that reveal to you about the way that mainstream media wants the general public, even the black history layman, to understand black history? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it all goes to how we remember historical icons, you know. Um, Martin Luther King was a very multi-dimensional character, just like a host of other historical characters. And I would say that historical icons, regardless of their quote-unquote race or ethnicity, are oversimplified, are just oversimplified. And depending on who it is who's portraying a historical icon, they will graft towards that part of the person that they want to focus on. And like I said before about the notion of messiness in history, people don't like to present people in their full complexity. Um, That's why biographies by seasoned historians are usually long and very complicated and will not leave the reader with a one-dimensional portrayal of that historical character. The same has been true of Martin Luther King Jr., is that drilled into the American psyche, and Michael Eric Dyson talks at great length about this, is this notion of the quote-unquote, I have a dream, Martin Luther King, which severs him. It freezes him within a historical moment without acknowledging the fullness of his character and his evolution as a thinker and an activist, he was not just this one-sided individual. He grew and matured like all of us throughout his life. I mean, just imagine anybody characterizing you based upon a certain phase of your life. It wouldn't make sense, and it wouldn't speak to your whole person. And there's a tendency to do that because, again, people got to keep it simple. Um you know, um, especially if there's commercials involved and, and people are trying to, to use history and historical icons in the name of profit. You have this facet. Well, first of all, let me uh, reintroduce you to our audience. Historian Pero G. Dagbovi is uh, the author of Reclaiming the Black Past, the Use and Misuse of African-American History in the 21st Century, which is an exceptional book. You mentioned visiting the National Museum of African-American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., and overhearing others at the museum comment on the displays. You write that while standing in line at the Emmett Till Memorial, an African-American high school student nervously whispered to her friend, I don't want to see this. Till's death was violent and very, very disturbing. How much does knowledge of black history even suffer uh, among, even among African-Americans because the level of yeah. heinous violence is something to yeah. which people would rather not subject themselves? Yeah, I mean, I have a really good story, a brief one that I'll just share with you. Um, I have three kids, like I had said before, and I remember taking them to the Detroit African American History Museum when they were young, and there is a replica of a slave ship there, and it's very real. There are mannequins, um, there's, there's eerie music playing in the background, it's dark, and I remember taking my six-year-old through it, and 
you know, halfway through, hands clapping my hand, wanting to go the other way to get out. Finally, there's Dormark exit. Tears are coming down his eyes. We exit the museum, and he was semi-traumatized. I had to kind of give him a brief little history lesson. And for about two or three years after that, whenever I would say we're going to go to a Black History Museum, he viewed a Black History Museum as just being all about that harsh oppression. And so when you study Black history, you have to strike a convenient balance to the best of one's ability between, on the one hand, that harsh oppression, right, the anti-Black violence, and that perseverance, on the other hand. And I think that's the beauty of the Black experience the ability of generations of people under times that we really can't imagine to endure so much, but yet persevere. And I think that that's what we have to really, really focus on. And and the museum in D.C. does a wonderful job of that. And in my book, I say that I went there about four or five times. And the time that I was referring to from the quote that you read um, was when I was there with a whole bunch of high school students, and I was just observing them. I was putting out my hand as a sociologist, observing their reactions to the different exhibits, and I felt I felt good to see these young people impacted by this past. And we never like to um, find joy in our own life through the separation of other people, but I think that these young people were realizing that yes. We're facing times right now that are challenging, but those of us who laid the foundations for us had to face a whole lot. And if they could get through this, we could too. And so you have to confront that stuff in doses and understand how to process it. And I think with young people doing that, it's it's a great um, approach. And that exhibit on Emmett Till is really um, powerful at the museum like many of the other exhibits there. The Detroit Museum you're referring to is the Wright Museum of African American History. The Wright Museum, yes. Right. Yes. And you... and the, till, the till is, of course, at the um, uh, museum in D.C. Right. Uh, but you also you write that while certainly educational, the National Museum of Amer- African American History and Culture in D.C., their depiction of the Middle Passage is mild when compared to the way yes. the Wright Museum of African American History in Detroit treats it, this horrific it phenomenon. Is. Yeah, yeah. What makes it mild, in your opinion? Is the Wright Museum's depiction more accurate? Well, I, I, I won't get involved in the notions of accuracy. I, I'm really talking about the presentation. Like, you actually walk through a, a slaver, a slave ship, when you're in the exhibit in Detroit. And it's, it's very powerful. Um, and I was actually one of the historians who helped um, designed the And Still We Rise exhibit there in Detroit. And it's a very powerful um, exhibit. The one in D.C. is is not as powerful. There are a bunch of images and a bunch of descriptions, but it's not as detailed as the one um, in Detroit. However, the, 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 the D.C. Museum has a host of other areas in the scope of the black experience where they do talk about the oppression and, and, and violence. Um, so they can't do everything in great detail. There's no way they could have had a replica of the slave ship at the DC museum based on all the other stuff that they have. So it was just a different approach for that episode um, of the black past. 
And you quote, uh, let's see, uh, National Museum of African American History and Culture founding director, uh, the historian Lonnie G. Bunch III, describing what he believed an underlying goal of the Smithsonian Institution's 19th Museum ought to be. Quote, I think the museum needs to be a place that finds the right tension between moments of pain and stories of resiliency and uplift. Difficult, controversial, sensitive topics while finding the right tension between moments of pain and stories of resiliency and uplift. Can and do stories of resiliency mute the moments of pain? Does the focus on resiliency make it so the topics are not as difficult or controversial and thus less sensitive? I just think there has to be a balance. Um, And... That's what I spoke to when I said there has to be this delicate balance between resistance, perseverance, and oppression. And I think that that can be accomplished, but you can't go too much on either side of it. Let's talk about the perseverance part. You can't really understand the perseverance part because you don't know what is being persevered over. And if you just focus upon the underside and the harsh resistance, then it just becomes victimization history, which is not healthy. So you have to really strike an even keel balance. For example, if you're talking or lecturing about the horrific nature of lynching, you can't just show photograph over photograph over photograph and talk about the harsh oppression. You also have to talk about how folks resisted this how black communities formed militias, how African-Americans in the tradition of Ida B. Wells protested this oppression. There has to be that constant balance. And striving to do that is very challenging. And, and it can wear on the individual who is teaching that experience. A historian by the name of uh, Walter Rodney you know, wrote about the slave trade in the Upper Guinea Coast, and he wrote a book called How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, He was interviewed one time, asked about his research about the slave trade, and he just said that, you know, at a certain point he had to stop doing it because he couldn't handle the quote-unquote stench of the slave trade, that it just began to impact him emotionally in, in ways that made him feel almost too uncomfortable. So those people who decide to study any people's history of oppression, um, they, they have to find a way to balance that and to acknowledge the humanity of people in the past. You write that the statues that are, because this speaks to what you were just saying, the statues that are in the D.C. Museum representing the era of slavery are quite predictable. Author and naturalist Benjamin Banneker, U.S. President Thomas Jefferson, the first published African-American poet Phyllis Wheatley, the first enslaved African-American to file and win a freedom suit in Massachusetts, Elizabeth Freeman, former slave who helped uh, other former slaves to settle during Colorado's gold rush, Clara Brown, former slave-turned-politician Robert Smalls, and the leader of the Haitian Revolution. Toussaint Louverture. So uh, though a small Bible that likely belonged to Nat Turner is on display, nobody who led an armed slave revolt or conspiracy in the United States, such as Jemmy, who led the 1739 Stono Rebellion in the then colony of South Carolina, Turner, uh, Denmark Vesey, who was accused and convicted of being the leader of the 1822 potential slave revolt in Charleston, South Carolina. Gabriel Proser, who planned a large slave revolt in Richmond, Virginia in 1800. Or abolitionist John Brown of 
Harper's, Fer- Par- Harper's Ferry fame are memorialized with a statue. What does it say to you about the way in which black history is presented to the public and understood by the public when armed slave revolts and their conspirators are not given as much attention as others who are memorialized in statues? I mean, what does it say to you when Thomas Jefferson, a slave owner, gets a statue, but Nat Turner does not? Well, they have reasons for making statues of, of certain people and including them in the museum. And in that argument that I made, I wasn't saying that there's no mention of those revolts in the museum. There are, but they decided to put certain people in statues and others not. I don't know the decisions of why these uh, individuals were put in statues and why others were not. But I'm assuming it's a combination of things. I am not in museum studies. I'm not a curator. I think people go with the familiar. People go with stuff that will draw them in. And then when they turn a corner, they can be hit with something else. So it could be a strategy. But it does speak to some general things about who we decide, you know, to celebrate. Um, there, There is, you know, National Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and um, there's not one for Malcolm X. And if you pose that question to people, you come up with a host of different reasons as to why that is the case. There is a tendency to go with the familiar. And that's why it's historians' jobs to bring up those icons who aren't as familiar in popular culture and in mainstream American society. Again, there are so many things that are done in that museum that there's no way that everything can be done, quote-unquote, with equal attention. But certain decisions had to be made by certain people. And I'm sure that if there were different people who were involved in making decisions, different things would have been portrayed. Um, overall, I think that it does an excellent job of, of balancing and of providing people with a cornucopia of different elements of the Black past because the only problem is you cannot see it in one visit unless you're there for like, you know, 12 hours. And even then, you'll probably be so brain fried that you'll have to come back. Like I said, I've been there more than three or four times. And I think if I went back, there would be new stuff. And the good thing is, is that they have some exhibits that they will constantly be changing. And so there's always room to add in different elements of the past. And you point out that, uh, unsurprisingly, the, the exhibit A Changing America, 1968, or the section of the museum and beyond, is the least expansive of the exhibitions in the history galleries. And you and you write about the museum's limited portrayal of the African-American experience after the Black Power era. And again, as you were right. saying, you're not a, a museum studies person. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. what? why is that time? Why do you think that time? Or what does it say to the public, that that time is yeah. of history is underappreciated. Because I, I kept thinking that while, I, and I want to reiterate, you love the D.C. Museum. You get a lot mm-hmm. out of it. You think it's really fantastic. Being critical of mm-hmm. it doesn't dismiss what it is. But I kept thinking yeah. in your writing that is, is the museum made so it can be accessible to white people without offending them? Um, I, I don't think that necessarily the case. I think it was constructed in consideration of various groups. Um, the whole lack of focus on the post 
black power era or the post-civil rights era, post-1968 era, is reflective of a broader trend within the African-American profession and enterprise as a whole. And what I mean by that is in, in, in a book that I wrote in 2015, What is African-American History? I make the argument that the historical scholarship on post-70s African-American history is largely underdeveloped. And it's what I would call contemporary black history. It seems that historians, with a few exceptions here and there, do not like to write about more contemporary past because maybe they don't want to be labeled cultural uh, study scholars or something. There's this tendency to not write about certain time periods unless a certain amount of time has lapsed. The presidency of Barack Obama has been written on already extensively, but I can guarantee you that in 20 or 30 years that there's going to be an explosion of scholarship written by historians on the age of Obama because enough time will have elapsed to where historians believe that they can more objectively, as historians, deal with that topic with all the source material that they have at hand. So the lack of focus on post-1968 African-American history in the museum, I think, is just a reflection of our notion of what history means. And, and, and I might be an extremist, but I think history is what I just said five minutes ago, you know? I think history is constantly, you know, being generated, i.e., it's everything that's not the present moment that stands behind you. And again, we can put those different phases in different categories, the recent past, the distant past, but it's really about how we conceptualize, really, what, what history means. And again, I think that the museum as a whole tried to strike to its best ability Disbalance, and I think that no matter what your perspective is, you can find stuff that you'll graph towards. And the beauty of it is, if you go in with just one focus, you're not going to be able to avoid the other stuff. If you just want to see the perseverance, you can focus on that stuff. But on the way, walking through that massive museum, you're going to be struck with some other stuff. Just like just our keen on looking at the oppression, you're going to find the perseverance. So it's a space that is going to influence you no matter what, unless you turn on total blinders, which I think is impossible. We have been speaking with historian Pero G. Dagbovi. He is author of Reclaiming the Black Past, the Use and Misuse of African American History in the 21st Century. He's the incoming editor at the Journal of African American History and for 2019, and you should definitely check out their website. Pero's most recent books prior to Reclaiming the Black Past are 2015's What is African American History and 2014's Carter G. Woodson in Washington, D.C., The Father of Black History. I, I had one last question for you, but then I came across the name uh, Carter G. Woodson, and you point out how there's like a Michael Jordan wing and a Oprah Winfrey wing within the right. D.C. Museum, but then no discussion of the, you know, the father of black history, Carter G. Woodson. Right. What right. message do you think that conveys to the people who are attending the museum? You know, um, like I said, I've tried to cover all the terrain in that museum and went through it more than a few times. And I didn't see a whole lot on Carter Woodson. Now, maybe I missed something. It's very possible. It's a massive building with countless exhibitions. 
But I would have expected and liked, and maybe they'll do this during National African American History Month in a specific exhibit, to have seen more stuff about Carter Woodson, the quote-unquote father of black history. Black history today, how it's perceived in popular culture, how it's studied, would not be what it is today without the unwavering commitment and vision of Carter G. Woodson. Um, that's just, to me, a quote-unquote fact. I don't want to think in historical what-ifs, but if Woodson had not done what he did, the profession would be different today. Um, what we call National African American History Month or Black History Month is a direct byproduct of what he created back in the 1920s, known as Negro History Week. And so I just wish that there would have been a special monument to him, a special exhibit to him, especially given the fact that his association was uh, headquartered in Washington, D.C. And at one point, it was his vision back in the day to create an African-American museum that did not come to fruition under his guidance. So hopefully, um, there will be some more attention paid to the father of black history and future exhibits at the museum. Uh, Pero, I've got one last question for you, and uh, you and I actually have a friend in common, uh, Clarence. You play soccer with him on a regular basis, and he tells me that he is <laughs> that you are an amazing soccer player, sir. So, <laughs> so our final question for you is, and for all of our guests, is always the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going uh-huh. to hate your response. And I ran this by Clarence to make sure this would be a good question from hell for you. Your office at Michigan State is in the old horticulture building, right uh, by the Eli and Edith Broad Art Museum. As someone who was mistaken for being a member of the media, I was actually invited to the opening of the museum and was lucky enough to hear the architect of the museum, the late Zaha Hadid, talk about what I think is truly a stunning structure. I think it's a beautiful building. But, Pero, is it okay if I actually like the Eli Broad Museum, but when it comes to Broad's fortune of charter schools, I hate Eli Broad? Um, I will just let you make your statement and, um, what you think and what you believe is all up to you. So that's how I'll answer your question. <laughs> See, now that's a good question from hell then. Thank you very much, Pero. <laughs> this is a, this is a fantastic book. I really, really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much. And the next time I'm in East Lansing, I lived there for five years. Next time I'm there, I would love to meet you, sir. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Take care, Pero. Bye-bye. All right, then. Live from the Nightmare of Want, this is hell. There's so much we get wrong about terms like the American dream, America first, and American exceptionalism. Hell, Reagan was way off base when he intoned the historic phrase of the U.S. being a beacon on a hill. We'll find out what these terms really mean and what investigating these terms mean for present-day America as well as our future when we speak with scholar Sarah Churchwell author of Behold America, The Entangled History of America First and the American Dream, which was named a Smithsonian Magazine Best History Book of 2018. It's time for listener feedback. Our first email to chuck at thisishell.com. Actually, I'm going to skip to one of the ones that's later in here because it's all about Alex. Uh, Let's see. Here it is. This is from Khalil in Oakland. Hello, Chuck. 
I am very grateful for your work. But oh my god, I hated that interview with Roy Scranton, and not in a good way. I think he is a determinist and possibly a secret nihilist. And in case you didn't know, that's not the same as good old-fashioned hopeless realism. Roy Scranton has no soul. I bet he listens to dubstep and is a bad tipper. Don't feed, this trollish, uh, don't feed his trollish assertion that there may be no such thing as free will. I blame Alex because I would have missed the in- that interview had he not dredged it up for staff picks. Oh, and I blame your niece or whoever got you sick last week. Anyway, we are still friends and forgive you, forgive you, signed Khalil in Oakland. Yes, let's all blame Alex. I mean, just because I asked Roy to be on the show not once but twice and as the very responsible and competent producer that Alex is, he booked Roy both times. It doesn't mean it has anything to do with me or is my fault in any way. Again, let's all blame Alex for anything that ever goes wrong on This Is Hell. I think that should be a policy. What do you think, Alex? He's calling a guest, see? Responsible and competent. Here's another email we got to Chuck at thisishell.com. It's from, let's see, this one's really long, and I don't know if we have time for it. Uh, oh, Chuck, and this is from Paul, who works on the School of the Art Institute's F Magazine. He wrote to us with a guest suggestion. Chuck and Alex, you might have seen Eric J. Garcia's political cartoons, El Machete. He's got a book out now, Drawing on Anger, Portraits of U.S. Hypocrisy, which launched at an author talk at the National Museum of Mexican Art this week. You can see his cartoons at F News Magazine, as well as his Twitter site, Eric Garcia. He's going to be moving to Minneapolis in a couple of months, so if he interests you, you should contact him now. Paul, I will look into it. It sounds really interesting, but an interview about cartoons on the radio? Uh, I'm not sure how much that's going to work out. We did interview Ted Rawl in the past. I don't know. Robert writes to us with a question. Are you aware that Abby Martin, Telesur correspondent, has been censored by the Trump administration on YouTube, etc.? No, Robert, I'm not aware of that. But I guess I am now. So there's that. We got more guest suggestions uh, from all sorts of people. Hugh and Skokie, and we will might get more time to talk about those a little bit later on today's show. Uh, anything else I wanted to make sure I had? Da, 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 da. I think there was somebody who was upset with Alex on Twitter. I can't remember. We'll get back to these in a little bit. If you want to contact us, all you have to do is send us an email at chuck at com. You can direct message us at This Is Hell Radio on Twitter, or you can message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the battle between the American dream and America first, our fantasized view of Africa. During a moment of truth, Jeff answers the question, what have we become? All that stuff, plus maybe some more listener feedback. What Alex has been up to on social media will tell you what happened on this week's and last week's Patreon podcast of This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We will also want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. We're not going to get to twist off knowledge, but we will tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell. Our Leo O'Connell and Alex Jerry. 
The late great historian Howard Zinn once called This Is Hell unabashedly partisan on matters of peace and justice and allows interviewees the opportunity to express themselves as boldly as they like. This Is Hell upholds the best standards of independent media, honesty, courage, refusal to play the game. Yeah, I know, Howard Zinn, right? Pretty cool, right? That was 15 years ago, and I'm still broke. This is hell. American dream doesn't mean what you think it means. And America First has some real scary origins that you likely don't realize. And when it comes to American exceptionalism, yeah, we don't get the meaning of that right either. Here to help give us context and what should be an ongoing discussion over what all these terms mean. Scholar Sarah Churchwell is author of Behold America, The Entangled History of America First and The American Dream, which was named a Smithsonian Magazine Best History Book of 2018. Sarah, congratulations on being named one of the Smithsonian uh, Magazine's Best History Books of the Year. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I was delighted, as you might imagine. Sarah is professor, and now it's selling millions of copies every minute. <laughs> Sarah is professor of American literature and public understanding of the humanities at the University of London. Sarah's most recent book prior to Behold America was the 2014 work Careless People, Murder, Mayhem, and the Invention of the Great Gatsby. And you can follow Sarah on Twitter. At Sarah Churchwell, you start by citing an 1895 oration in honor of President Ulysses S. Grant, which stated... O critic and cynic, dreamer and doubter, behold America as this day she stands before her history and her heroes. Again, this is 1895. See her millions of people, her free institutions, her equal laws, her generous opportunities, her schoolhouses and her churches. You see misfortunes and defects, for not yet is fully realized the American dream. You surely see her mighty progress toward the fulfillment of her philosophy. How much were... Free institutions, equal laws, and generous opportunities seen as stepping stones to realizing the American dream at the turn of the century. Because I don't hear anything but the rags-to-riches American dream theme when it comes to the way we look at the American dream. Well, exactly right. And that was, that was my view, um, too. And, and that was what surprised me in doing this research, that, you know, we only talk about the American dream in terms of upward social mobility, as you say, rags to riches, individual opportunity and prosperity. And yet when you look at the, at the point at which the phrase emerged as a way to talk about, um, you know, a national value system, um, which was about 100 years ago, and the reason why I put that quotation at the front of the book that you just read and, and why I chose that phrase for my title is because it's actually one of the earliest instances that I found of the phrase the American dream being used to describe that kind of national value system. So A, it's a lot earlier than most historians thought, but much more importantly than when it happened, was that in the first decades in which the phrase was used, basically up until the Second World War, it was consistently used in those ways, as, as you just described it, to talk about social justice, to talk about democracy, to talk about equality of opportunity. But those were the American dream. And the American dream wasn't about getting rich. In fact, some of the earliest examples I found of the phrase were concerned that this new phenomenon known as multimillionaires, because out of you know, out of the Gilded Age and the robber barons, you know, the industrialist tycoons were making so much money, they were becoming multimillionaires. And, and that was this new thing. Nobody had ever had that much money. So it's sort of like the way we talk about Bezos being, you know, the richest man in the world. And instead of saying that that was the realization of the American dream, they said that would be the death of the American dream, because that kind of private wealth would recreate an aristocracy. And that was what 
the American dream was supposed to be getting away from. So they said it was an un-American dream to, to have that kind of vast private wealth because it would mean you only had opportunity for the few and the American dream was of opportunity for the many. To, and I thought that was really, really surprising and I thought it was worth bringing out. Yeah, so to what extent then is uh, inequality the enemy of the American dream and what explains that the lack of concern from those on the right when it comes to inequality and its potential impact on the American dream. Well, exactly. And so th- that's what's so interesting to me is that is that the, the phrase arose in debates about inequality, as it is now, but it was used on the opposite side of the argument. I never found a single instance of it being used to defend free market capitalism. And now, as you imply, it's basically used as synonymous with free market capitalism on the right. And they say things like, that, the, that any kind of regulated capitalism or social democracy is, anth- is antithetical to the American dream, that it's antipathetic to the American dream. And it turns out, you know, and they say, oh, you know, that the American dream is absolutely opposed um, to that kind of social democracy because we have to have this kind of unfettered capitalism. And on the contrary, the phrase emerged in order to argue precisely for those kinds of reforms in order to protect, as I said, a minute ago, in order to protect opportunity for everyone and not just for the few. Um, as for why people on the right don't say that anymore, I mean, you know, we'd have to ask them, and your guess is as good as mine. But obviously, what's happened is that they have, um, over the over the decades, uh, you know, since the end of the Second World War and and the um, in the beginning of the Cold War, which is really when the meanings of the American dream started to shift, and definitely since. Reagan, when he really linked the idea of the American dream to that kind of unfettered capitalism, um, people have swallowed that logic wholesale, and they, you know, and they think that everything is down to the individual. They seem to think that, you know, I mean, you hear it. People who are very successful in America today will say that they made it entirely on their own. Um, and those of us who are progressives tend to counter by saying, well, no, because you had access to education, because you had access to, you know, you, you, you had, you know, safe roads and you weren't, in, you know, living in a war zone and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they don't recognize that those kinds of social structures protected them and created various kinds of privileges and protected their own opportunities. So, you know, Americans, as, as I don't have to tell you, are encouraged to take credit for all of our own successes and not and not acknowledge the way in which our society might have helped us. And we're encouraged to blame others for their own failures and not to recognize the way in which our society might have disadvantaged them. And we're very, very bad as a country um, at, at acknowledging our own structural inequalities because we, we have such an investment in telling ourselves that we're the, the land of the free and the home of the brave and equality of opportunity and, and everybody has a chance and that's meritocracy. Um, and and then, you know, simply lie or in denial about the degree to which that just isn't true for so many of our citizens and the ways in which the people that we hold up as success stories, um, as individual success stories, are usually people who inherited vast privilege and indeed sometimes vast wealth. And you quote Donald Trump saying on June 16, 2015, while announcing his candidacy for president of the United States, Quote, sadly, the American dream is dead. And you mentioned how democratic equality and an economic economic opportunity are not the same thing. But the American dream has for decades been used as if they are in proclaiming the American dream dead. 
Was Trump focusing on economics? And what is missed in our understanding of the American dream when we only view it as economic mobility and the possibility of going from rags to riches simply on merit of simply being good at whatever we do? Yeah, well, what's missed is, you know, the whole point about what America was supposed to be, you know, once upon a time, um, what we were supposed to be aspiring to, which was, a, which was a more perfect union, which was a better society, which was a place where, you know, social justice and, um, and, you know, democratic opportunity could be achieved and that we would have to work toward that. The recognition that that wasn't just there, that that was something that we would have to strive for because it was an ideal that we aspired toward. And that's why it was a dream. Nobody was saying we'd done it and nobody was saying it was a guarantee or a promise. People were saying the, the only promise was that America was dedicated to, to trying to make that come true and that we had to keep doing better. Um, and along the way, we lost sight of that in a kind of, you know, land grab for, for individual rich and, and for, you know, competitive um, prizes. And, you know, what, what's interesting to me is that the, the man who popularized the phrase the American dream, who was an historian in um, 1931, so, it, so, you know, I found earlier instances where it was used and you can see it start to emerge. But in 1931, it became this kind of national craze, really, because he wrote this bestseller and everybody started talking about the American dream. And what's really interesting about his book, which was called The Epic of America, is that he he was arguing in, in this same vein that the crash had happened and that the Great Depression had happened. Of course, 31, he's writing from the depths of the Depression, that that had all come about because America had lost sight of its higher ideals and because people had stopped thinking about what was what would the good life be in a, in a broader and more you know aspirational sense and were only concerned with having a new car and you know he said living like an up to date department store um, and what I found really fascinating was that at the end of that book um, he gives an image of what he thinks. Um, he said he always thinks of whenever he thinks of the American dream. And it's the reading room at the Library of Congress. It's a public library. He says that to him is the purest symbol of the American dream, because it's a place, a public library is a place in which rich and poor, young and old, black and white, male and female can come together in a place of learning and self-betterment that is provided by self-government by people recognizing that it's in everybody's interest for them to help improve each other and themselves. And so he sees a public library as the greatest symbol of the American dream. And that's the kind of thing I mean, it made my eyebrows, you know, kind of fly up into my head. You know, it was like, can you imagine anybody today saying that a public library was the symbol of the American dream? But for the person who popularized it, it was. And that's the, that's the national conversation that we've lost sight of and that I wanted to remind us, um, all of us, that we used to dream differently. And in my view, we used to dream better. And you write that the American dream isn't dead either. We just have no idea what it means anymore. What does that lack of understanding of what it means anymore, what does that reveal either about the American dream or the state of the U.S. today when we don't know what American dream means anymore? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's back to your point about about Trump saying that it's dead. If you have this very narrowly economic idea of it, and you know, and, and, and what I take Trump to mean there is he doesn't even just mean economics, although, you know, that was playing to his audience and, and to the to the grievances of um, people who think that 
the American economy used to be good for them and isn't good for them anymore. And, you know, which is certainly true for a lot of people. I, I don't think anybody's denying that. The question is whether Trump is the right guy to help those people out. And, you know, in my view, that's you know, pretty foolish um, bet. Um, you know, he doesn't seem to have any evidence in helping it, you know, any interest in helping anybody but himself. But he's also someone who clearly is hearkening back to the kind of glory days of America in the 50s when people like him ran everything. And there's, so there's, there's a kind of element of that in it, too, this kind of social vision of who's America, what kind of America. I mean, it was Martin Luther King in 1963, of course, in the famous I Have a Dream speech, who's talking about the fact that the American dream was only available to white people and that it had been systematically denied to black people. And in the 70s, during second wave feminism and the Stonewall movement, women and gay people started saying, wait, the American dream has not actually been very available to us. It's been denied to us in all kinds of ways. I mean, of course, women don't even get the franchise until 1920. So how can you say that people, that those people, that those citizens had access to the American dream uh, if they couldn't even vote, let alone have full political legal power um, and, and, you know, power over their own bodies, which, of course, we're still fighting over. So I take it that when, when Trump and, and his, um, <laughs> I think of them as his minions, um, when, they, when they make references to the American dream being dead, they're not just talking about economic stagnation, although they are talking about that. But I, I take it that they're talking about you know, some some more um, uh, idealized, nostalgic vision of the America that they like to think of um, from the 50s and that and that they want that back. Um, and of course, they can't have it back. It's not coming back. So the the ways in which we have we've narrowed our own understandings of what our country could be, we've narrowed our own ambitions. And that's what, you know, I say in the book is that we've inherited this kind of diminished dream. And we've been told that all we should dream of is a nice house and a nice car. And, and, and that's all we should care about. And of course, I think what we're seeing right now in the energy on the left and the, and the politicization on the left is a real pushback against that idea. I mean, I'm obviously not alone in feeling that, you know, America needs to write its moral compass and to reestablish, you know, what it is that we think our national value system is. What are we dreaming of? Is it just riches? Well, that's no basis for a society. I mean, it just isn't. And you write that history rarely starts when we think it did it. It never seems to end when we think it should, nor does it tend to say what we think it will. The phrases American Dream and America First were born almost exactly a century ago and rapidly tangled over uh, capitalism, democracy, and race, the three fates always spinning America's destiny. And you talk about how we just don't have a discussion about what um, the American Dream means anymore, yet... There's also a lack of public debate or criticism of capitalism in the U.S. There's no questioning of the efficacy of representative democracy. And when discussing race, the conversation is often dismissed as playing the race card. So if these are, as you call them, the three fates always spinning America's destiny, then why is discussing them seemingly taboo? Or do we discuss them just not in a challenging way? Yeah, I would say probably more like the latter. I mean, of course, we do do talk about race, but we just tend not to... I think we tend not to admit the depth of our failings and we, we, you know, people, people are having, you know, always having debates about, you know, are you allowed to call somebody racist or who's racist or what does it mean to say that? Or, you know, black lives matter. Is it all lives matter? So those kinds of things mean that race is always in the conversation. 
Um, but are we having a meaningful conversation about it in which we acknowledge the ways in which it has shaped our history and the ways in which it shapes the lives of so many people, um, you know, in America today? And I think that we do have to have better conversations about white privilege, um, in my view, in particular. I mean, you know, I, I actually, you know, I don't know if you know, but I grew up in Chicago. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs in Winnetka. And the, you know, the degree to which the, the kinds of opportunities that I had were made available to me because I come from a family with, that have been educated for generations that had the, you know, educational opportunities over and over and over again. Um, and we tend, you know, kind of like what I was saying at the beginning about thinking that our successes belong to us alone. Um, well, they don't. And, and the fact is, is that most white prosperity in the United States was built on the back of slaves, uh, of institutionalized slavery. It just was. And we don't talk about that. We don't talk about the fact that companies like Brooks Brothers, you know, which everybody still can go and buy from, and Brooks Brothers, you know, made their money out of slavery. And that then they, you know, they could, I'm not having a, you know, I'm not, having, I'm not attacking Brooks Brothers as such. There are lots and lots of companies in America of whom the same thing could be said. Lehman Brothers, um, you know, goes on and on. And I mean, they don't exist anymore, but you know what I mean. That these companies that were successful for so long and that they could then, you know, their kids and their employees and all of those people would benefit from that prosperity without ever acknowledging the way in which it was also disadvantaging uh, um, the people who were descended from slaves. So, you know, I do think we have to tell the truth about that. And I think it's very important that we recognize that the phrase America first, which uh, Trump has decided to bring, you know, very much back into the forefront of the national conversation is not an innocent patriotic slogan. It has it comes with an enormous amount of baggage and a huge huge history of white nationalism and eugenicist policies, specifically eugenicist policies, white supremacist policies, looking at keeping uh, citizenship rights and privilege um, accessible only to uh, to you know so-called Anglo-Saxon or uh, you know white Americans. And uh, not only denying those rights to black Americans, but of course, also these groups were anti-Semitic and they were anti-immigrant, very, very uh, um, rabidly uh, xenophobic. And the, the kinds of policies that they passed in the name of America first in the uh, teens and 20s in particular, and the ways in which the rise of the KKK in the 1920s, um, which, you know, had, had much more uh, uh, influence in mainstream politics than I think a lot of Americans still appreciate. Again, it's something that we, we don't teach uh, ourselves very well and we don't look at squarely um, the, the truth about the, that history. And the fact is, is that all of those groups and those uh, um, and and those uh, um, their their violence and their violent rhetoric and their physical violence um, and threats and intimidation and in many cases of course um, actual um, murder and and that those all of those sorts of um, uh, you know activities and behaviors and and um, and in some cases atrocities were associated with America first. That was their slogan. So it just has this huge baggage and nobody wants to talk about it. And all they talk about is the degree to which Charles Lindbergh used it in 1940. And it was associated with um, uh, debates about whether we should enter the Second World War and you know, associated, therefore, with the potential for Nazi appeasement. But it wasn't just about how we viewed Europe. It was about how we behaved 
to American citizens at home. And America First was a, a code. Um, and, and that's what I try to show in the book, is that it was very clearly a code. Here's what it meant. And that there's an awful lot of evidence to say that Trump and the people around him know exactly what that phrase means, and they didn't pick it by accident. Best answer ever. <laughs> Long answer, sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. That's what you're supposed to do on this show. Uh, you also mentioned Ronald Reagan's often cited City on a Hill, in which he suggested that America was a shining ideal uh, held up to the world to emulate. And you point out that the City on the Hill, which uh, for Reagan became a, a shorthand that distorted ideas of American exceptionalism. Uh, how did that distort ideas of American exceptionalism as one of the legacies then of Reagan's rhetoric, a misunderstanding in the rights redefining of what American exceptionalism means. Absolutely. The whole history of American exceptionalism is that is so the the the, the person of course who coined the phrase um, city upon a hill, which should be as a shining city upon a hill was John Winthrop in sixteen thirty. And if you go back, it's easy to Google. If you go back and look at the actual language of what Winthrop said, um, he was not saying we'll be a shining beacon like the, you know, like the Emerald City in The Wizard of Oz. You know, it was always a kind of image that I have in my head, that, the way that Reagan uses it, that the whole world would be pointing at us like we were this cool place that everybody had to go to. In fact, what Winthrop said in 1630 was, um, we'll, be, we'll be as a city upon the hill, all eyes shall be upon us. And, and they'll be judging the outcome of the experiment. In other words, it was the equivalent of a goldfish bowl. He was just saying everybody's going to be watching. We're sailing off to set up the society, and the whole world will be watching to see how we do. And so let's not screw it up. And that was basically what he was saying. And that's a very different statement from God loves us. We're going to be so awesome that the rest of the world will model themselves on us. In fact, it's the opposite. He was very concerned that they might not live up to their own ideals and their own expectations. And, and that, you know, that kind of um, uh, twisting of that meaning or that loss of meaning over, over three centuries, three and a half centuries, um, to me was very symbolic of the way that we, that we misunderstand and distort our own history, that we keep turning it into this kind of triumphalist version of, you know, we did everything great, we did everything perfectly, we achieved our own ideals, instead of a much more uncertain an anxious relationship to our ideals that we had in the beginning, which was, you know, these are good ideals. Let's try to live up to them. Let's try to do better. Um, and that's, as I say, that's a very different kind of approach to your society to say, can we keep doing better? Can we achieve a more perfect union? Can we be more just? Can we be more fair? Um, and that, that the, the kinds of, um, various kinds of historical accidents that happened along the way, um, we always turned into this kind of, you know, we kind of would, would rationalize it after the fact as this kind of justification of our moral grandeur, instead of like, sometimes that was just dumb luck. You know, as a country, we just kind of found ourselves with the right um, combination of factors. And something that was accidental and fortuitous, we then would turn into proof of American exceptionalism and be like, you know, well, we got it exactly right. And look how special we are. And we're unique. And nobody else does it as well as we do. Um, when in fact, often we just kind of stumbled into a lucky position because of, you know, factors that were either beyond our control or, as I say, we were, I mean, you know, again, slavery was exceptionalist, not in a good way. But, you know, we, we our extension of institutionalized um, you know, capitalist slavery until 1865 uh, had a lot to do with the development of American 
of, of American industrial wealth and might. Um, and, you know, and we don't, we don't talk about the fact that part of what made us exceptional was part of what made us exceptionally wrong, exceptionally bad, um, but exceptionally rich. So, you know, the, that ex- exploitation that, and, and of course, you know, um, genocide of Native Americans as another example, right? So the, the, except, the exceptional aspect of our history is not always to our credit, and yet we always talk about it as if it is. So, and you also write that reactionary populism in the United States has historically defined itself against the same enemies, urban elites, immigrants, liberals, progressives, and organized labor, and for the same beliefs, uh, evangelical Protestantism, traditional family values, and white supremacy. Trump has once again brought Americans face-to-face with a deeply rooted populist conservatism. So is Trump then not an anomaly, as many of his critics have argued, that his embrace of the far right and use of their dog whistles and policy platforms is not as unprecedented as many who oppose Trump believe? And and what happens in that misunderstanding when we see Trump as an anomaly and not something that has deep roots in American history? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, again, you know, if we don't see those deep roots, we don't we don't own we don't own the phenomenon. We don't we won't be able to come to terms with it if we treat again. And speaking of exceptionalism, right? If we treat treat Trump as purely an anomaly, then the um, the risk is that if we can eliminate him, we'll think that we've eliminated the problem. Um, that that was the only thing that was at issue, and we just had to get rid of him. Now, and you know, I'll put my cards on the table and say I very much want to get rid of him, and I think we won't we won't get anywhere until we do that. But I do think that he is he is the symptom, not the cause, and that getting rid of him, you know, will not actually uh, um, heal the divisions in our society, and it won't right those injustices. H- having said that, he is anomalous, of course, because he's the first one who made it to the White House. So there are there are kind of variants of him in the past, um, most notably Huey Long, the senator from Louisiana. Um, but we might think about George Wallace. We might think about even McCarthy, who in, in many ways, you know, there are, there are strong analogies between McCarthy and Trump um, and, and, and their, the success of their kind of, you know, um, of, of their approach to society, if you like, or their approach to politics. So um, in that sense, Trump isn't, you know, uh, again, uh, doesn't come out of nowhere, but none of them got anywhere uh, near as close as, uh, well, obviously he got there, right? I mean, but they didn't even come close. Um, so he, he, so he is anomalous in that sense. He's anomalously dangerous because always before we've been able to shut that stuff down before it could get to the top, but this time it got to the top. You mentioned a column written by the journalist Dorothy Thompson that she wrote immediately following Pearl Harbor. In that, uh, you quote her stating, for a whole generation, the American ideal has been to get as much as it could for as little effort as possible. For a whole generation, the American motto has been, I guess it's good enough. We have admired success and success has been measured in money. The question has not been how well is it done, but how much does it pay? And mediocrity in high places and low has been the American dream to get by with things to make pleasure and leisure the aim of life, to indulge in fatuous optimism, to be certain that in some way everything will turn out all right, and to run screaming after a scapegoat, as you were mentioning before, if it didn't. How much do you see that fatuous optimism leading up to the financial crisis of uh, 2008, and does American optimism create a fertile environment for the rise of the far right? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's why that passage was so important to me and why I quoted it. I mean, Dorothy Thompson becomes kind of the hero of my book, um, you know, kind of incredibly eloquent and 
um, insightful critic of, I mean, she loved America, but, you know, was also a critic of, of where she saw it going wrong. And over and over again, I would, I would read her words from 1936, 1938, 1940, and I would just hear America today. It was so, the echoes were so strong and it was so prophetic like that one. Um, and yes, I, I love that phrase, fatuous optimism. We can't, and that's sort of what I, what I meant about our, about our self-congratulation a minute ago as well. They go hand in hand, don't they? This idea that, you know, everything's going to be great because we're American and we've always been great. And isn't it marvelous? And it's like, well, no, we haven't always been great and we need to do better. And that idea that, um, that everything should kind of come easily and that, that, and that the American dream was a, was a promise or a guarantee very quickly slides to resentment when and grievance when that perceived promise doesn't come true. So, you know, insofar as for a couple of generations, a lot of people would have defined the American dream as meaning that every generation should do better than the one before it. And nobody stopped and thought, well, actually, isn't there a point at which we're affluent enough? Isn't there a point at which we're prosperous enough? Can you just keep endlessly expanding? And we didn't think in terms of sustainability. We didn't think in terms of but this is prosperity. This is good. Now can we spread the prosperity instead of making sure that my kids make even more money than I made and that their kids make even more money than they did, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that when those perceived promises are broken or are perceived to have been broken, then there's an enormous amount of uh, resentment. There's an enormous amount of social and political grievance, a sense that your that the social contract has been broken, that your government betrayed you in very real ways, um, and that and that what what you, maybe you could make peace with, you're not prepared to live with because it's it's not as good as you thought it was supposed to be, and um, and and absolutely that does pave the way for the rise of the far right, and it's doing it in you know, other places than the United States as well. Just a couple more questions for you. I know you have to get going. How aware do you think the American public is that America first and states' rights and even anti-immigration policies are, are rooted, grounded, founded in the ideology of the KKK and Nazis? And if the public did become aware of that, to what degree do you think that they would end support of America first? Yeah. Well, I don't think they know it at all. I mean, I, I think the vast majority of people don't know it. People on the far right do know it because they kept these phrases alive in the underground. And there's lots of evidence of that historical evidence of it. You know, they would like the KKK would, you know, have America first rallies in the 60s. And you can find the flyers and the handbills and stuff. And um, since, you know, in, in more recent uh, years, um, of course, there are traces on the Internet. So if you go on to um, neo-Nazi websites like um, Stormfront or, you know, the Daily Stormer or that kind of thing, um, you'll see that they are still talking about America First. They had an America First rally in response to um, the protests and the killing at Charlottesville last year, and they responded to that with this kind of white nationalist America First. So it's underground, but most, most Americans absolutely, I think, don't see it. And that was why I wrote the book. You know, if I thought if everybody knew this, I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have bothered. Um, but to say to those people, to the vast majority of people who use it innocently, um, to say to them, this is not an innocent phrase, and this is the equivalent of using Heil Hitler innocently. And if I met somebody who, who genuinely didn't know what Heil Hitler means, I wouldn't say, oh, that's okay, if that's just patriotic, if that's the way you're using it, don't worry about what it used to mean. And none of us would. We would all be like, no, that's a terrible phrase, and here's why. And so that's kind of what I wanted to do with this, was just say to, you know, to our to our compatriots, guys, this is a really bad phrase. 
you don't want to be using this. And absolutely, it shows the degree to which a lot of these policies and ideologies are rooted in white ethno-nationalism. And the people who keep insisting, you know, you're reading too much into this for thinking this is that this is racist, you know, I'm sorry, it just is. And even if you voted for Trump on the basis of your tax break and you didn't vote for him because you were advancing racism or because you were you were choosing to side with racism in your mind, the fact of the matter is you made common cause with racism. And that is a decision that America is going to have to reckon with. We're going to have to acknowledge that that was the case. And, you know, I know Trump voters who absolutely are not racist. I know them in daily life. I, I expect you do, too. But... My problem with them, and I have said this to them, is that they were prepared to go along with the racists. And I'm like, you know, my personal view is that, is that you know, if the, if the racists throw a party, I'm not going to it. And it's no good going there and saying you're just, having, you're just there for the snacks, you know? <laughs> like, you joined the party. You got on the bus. And even if you're saying you were going there so that you could get your tax breaks, well, funnily enough, the two go hand in hand, because that's what we were talking about earlier with the kind of structural privilege for white people. You can't actually separate the two out, although most of us are encouraged to do so. You're not just there for the snacks. I really like that a lot. Uh, one <laughs> last question for you, Sarah. Uh, our final question for each and every one of our guests is called the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. We've been speaking with scholar Sarah Church- Churchwell. She is author of Behold America, the Entangled History of America First and the American Dream, which was named a Smithsonian Magazine Best History Book of 2018. And you can follow Sarah on Twitter, at Sarah Churchwell. You write, this is a story about old-fashioned intangibles, about ethics, morals, and character, and we dismiss them as old-fashioned at our peril. Without them, we are left with some very concrete tangibles. Corruption, kleptocracy, swindling, those are old-fashioned too. So is white supremacism in all its nationalist malevolence. How much can the left's dismissal of the American dream or claiming that it is dead or evil lead to corruption and further institutionalize racism as well as white supremacy? Yeah, I mean, I think I actually don't hate to answer that question. I think it's a really important one. I think that, you know, we, we, we talk as if the American dream it, uh, it has only ever been used as this so on the left. You know, there's this tendency to talk about it as a fig leaf that was used to disguise all of the kind of nefarious practices of American capitalism. And it certainly has been used that way, as I say in the book. There's no question. And particularly recently, um, it's been used that way a lot. But that's not the only thing it can mean. And I really do think that, you know, surely all of us on the left do agree um, in principles of social justice and principles of equality, democracy. And those are enshrined in our founding documents. And that stuff does matter. I take it that that is what we're supposed to, that the nation is supposed to be uniquely dedicated to, as Lincoln said, you know, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And that is surely the, the social justice arguments on the left. And so, you know, as I say, call me old fashioned, but, you know, I do think we can reclaim that and I think we should reclaim it. And we, we need to recognize the times when we get it right as, as well as the times when we get it wrong, because if we think we only get it wrong, then that's just as destructive um, in my view. And so we just have to have more nuance and we have to have more honesty and we have to have more moral courage in talking about where we've gone wrong, but where we've gone right, and saying that, you know, the, the, the move from Obama to Trump is a really, really instructive one. And I agree with what Obama said to um, David Remnick in The New Yorker right after 
from selection. He said American history doesn't go in a straight line. It goes in zigzags. Um, and I think that's absolutely right. And I, and I think that, that either on the left or the right, there's, I think we are at the moment, we're in a, we're in a dangerous place where we have a tendency to think that ideology is what's driving everything and to think that people and history moves consistently. But it doesn't move consistently. It moves very, very erratically indeed. And, and I think it's only by appreciating that that we can start to make real progress. And we didn't even touch on what a jerk Fred Trump was. Oh, my God, that man. <laughs> well, Woody Guthrie wrote a song about how racist he was. I think that's all anybody needs to know about Fred Trump. I know. Woody Guthrie. Woody Guthrie, not <laughs> Arlo. Like, you piss off Woody Guthrie. <laughs> Thank how you. How bad you have to be. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah, for being on our show. I really, really appreciate it. And when this book comes out in paperback, I hope to have you back on the show again because I really want to tell people about what a dick Fred Trump was. <laughs> I'm with you all the way. Thanks so much. Take care, Sarah. <laughs> Thank you. This is hell, where we put people before profits, and that turns out to be a really horrible business model. Our fantasies and imagination define how we view Africa and how we understand its present as well as its past. We'll learn what Africa really is and can be when we have the return of writer Zoe Samudzi, author of the Roar magazine article, Africa's Place in the Radical Imagination. Our internationalist concerns for Africa must necessarily transcend the flattened talking points to which the continent is frequently reduced in our discourses. Speaking of our horrible business model, where we stupidly put people before profits, Alex, I'm going to start talking about Patreon now, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a heads up. I didn't know where this was in the rundown. On Patreon over the past couple of weeks, I've been talking about holidays a lot. And not in the way you usually hear holidays discussed within the media that depends on advertisers who profit from the holidays. On Thanksgiving Eve, when you hear talking heads blab on about what they've been thankful for, I instead explained how all those things were supposed to be grateful for. Just give me guilt. I even suggest an alternative holiday where we share what really pisses us off. And I have a very sacrilegious name for that holiday, but I can't say it on air due to the FCC. So you can only hear that at patreon.com slash this is hell. We also shared an interview we did from 10 years ago with former Financial Times editor Eamon Fingleton on how the news media killed Detroit. Then this week on Patreon, I tried to entangle, untangle, I should say, the contradictions of This Is Hell hosting an annual holiday office party, which we will be doing yet again this year at Carrie's Lounge on Wednesday, December 19th. And I'll have more details about that party a little later on this week's show. We followed that rambling insanity with two interviews uh, with the late, great American Indian movement leader, Vernon Belcourt. And Alex has a clip across the land, yet the government squanders what little funds we have. And I would also point out that the big oil companies, in collusion with the Department of the Interior, have literally and are still looting our oil and natural gas resources, our coal, fossil fuels resources across the country. And I can tell you, if I was in a position of power as a tribal leader, I would shut down all of our oil fields and gas fields tomorrow until we get a fair accounting. Only then, through exercising that type of leverage, is this government going to realize that they have to take us serious. 
Yeah, a couple of things you mentioned there. The, these oil and coal companies have leased these lands from uh, Native Americans, and they were supposed to pay for these leases to go to uh, the Native Americans who are, who are living there. And then the Treasury Department didn't trust the Native Americans with the lease money, so the Treasury Department held on to it. And now there's no record of, there's no accounts receivable department in the Treasury Department for the lease on these lands. Does anybody know how much money is missing? Billions. Uh, they're shredding documents, even as I as we talk here. Uh, just recently, in the last week or so, it showed that more documents were being shredded. I mean, this is a massive, uh, should be a massive embarrassment to America. It's just an example of their continued abuse and neglect and racism toward Indian people. The uh, fact is, uh, we know that many of the oil companies, I'm not going to name one without naming them all, but they're actually bypassing the gauges uh, taking uh, the oil out of the tank before it went through the gauges. So uh, they've literally built us out of billions of dollars, which is the root cause of the suffering of Indian people. And so when the American Indian movement has been calling for restitution, reparations, restoration of lands for reconstruction of an Indian future in America, it will not only be good for our people to get our people off chronic cycles of poverty, get our people off welfare rolls and put them on payrolls through training and education, and they, we will again be a continuing contributor to the, uh, the building of what is called the American state. Right now, our people... Boy, my voice sure was high when I was a little kid. Uh, so, yeah, that also reminds me of the conversation we had about the U.S. Farm Bill and its impact on Native Americans and how a lot of people, you know... I've talked to people who have visited farms that are owned by Native Americans, and they have told me that they are in really horrible disrepair. And in our conversation about the Native Americans and the U.S. Farm Bill, they stated that one of the reasons that they are in disrepair is unlike a white farmer, uh, you know, Native Americans don't own the land that they're on. So what you can do as a as a white farmer, when you own your land, you can use your uh, land as collateral to get loans to improve the land that you're working on. Well, you can't do that as a Native American farmer because you don't own the land, so all of their farming is in quite a lot of disrepair. And here we have Vernon saying that not only that, the oil companies have built billions of dollars from Native Americans and billions of dollars that Native Americans could have used so they could have food sovereignty of their own. Instead, they're getting those boxes that everybody complained about when Trump said, we're going to send uh, boxes of food to people instead of giving them money. That's what Native Americans get. And they have to depend on that because they can't farm the way that everybody else farms because we won't let them. But you can only hear that and another 100-plus Patreon podcast we have done already, each featuring a new monologue from me and a classic interview that is otherwise not currently available online, by subscribing to patreon.com slash thisishell. Special thanks to Colin B. for joining us on Patreon this week. And, uh, and we now have 303 subscribers to our Patreon podcast. I spent a little time this week doing some math to try to figure out how many subscribers we need to make this show entirely sustainable. And I came up with 3,982, so we are only 3,679 subscribers short of our goal. And you can help us get closer to that goal by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. Hey, uh, I posted another bonus interview, too. Uh, 
that was maybe one of the most depressing interviews I've heard. This is also from 2000, and this was with Joyce Horman. Do you remember that interview, Chuck? Wait, I know that name. <laughs> no, I don't. Her, her husband uh, was a journalist and was murdered in the coup in 1973 in Chile. I thought that was missing. No, we have it, and I posted it, actually. Uh, I, I immediately thought of her because she is uh, the Sissy Spacek character in Missing, and I thought that that was missing and I recorded guess The interview over. was missing in its own way. Uh, no, the interview's there, and it is, uh, oh, awesome. it is a bummer. Yeah, that's a great, great interview. If you're familiar with the Jack Lemmon, Sissy Spacek movie from the 80s, Missing, that's fantastic. Oh, I'm so glad that we have that. I thought for sure that was recorded over by one of our correspondents a long time ago. So thank you, Richard, for unearthing that interview. It's really fantastic. And all these people talking about how Pinochet, that should be, you know, he did some really great things. Yeah, listen to that interview. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what $50 maximum gift should Chuck request from his secret Santa? What $50 maximum gift should Chuck request from his secret Santa? Our replies get read on air right now, and I promise I will actually request the gift suggested in the winning response. This week's winner will get, well, it's a secret. Again, the question from hell is what $50 maximum gift should Chuck request it's me, by the way, from his secret Santa. Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, to still have a chance at winning this week's secret prize. Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question from hell, because. What $50 maximum gift should Chuck request from his secret Santa? Joshua L. says, a gritty t-shirt and a shake weight. Pen D- Wait, who said that? That was Josh L. Pen D. says, no more gifts. Give Fs. As in, I give an F about climate change. $50 might be worth more than how much a regular person gives, but uh, that's a good one, Pendy. Uh, Scott S. says, whatever gift card your weed dealer would accept as a payment. Oh, he and, does uh, not. And I'll just say uh, that becomes a theme on this, Chuck, so I guess you have a brand going. Uh, Amy M. says, $50. Max I. says, fresh batteries. What $50 max gift should Chuck request from his secret Santa? Jenny J. says, give experiences, not things. So what I would want as a sort of millennial is... $50 in quarters for laundry money. <laughs> Lawrence C. says, request a Monopoly set. Do not insert pieces into navel cavity. <laughs> Nasal, sorry. Navel ca- <laughs> oh, I mean, maybe either one of those two. Uh, Bozena B. Thinks says, the bilge down there. Uh, Bozena B. says, a cake that actually does say, my demon is on my butt. <laughs> Joe, John T. says, they're two front teeth. Sounds like Chuck could use them. <laughs> Dan L. says, stolen and subvertised NPR mugs, tote bags, bumper stickers, etc. Our own Jeffy D. says, a pound and a half of locks. Hey, wait one second. That yeah. might be a winner. Mike A. says, an autographed 8x10 glossy of Canadian comedic legend Alan Thick. Oh, that's sweet. Alexandra C. says, one of those weighted blankets. <laughs> What $50 max gift should Chuck request from his secret Santa? Matt P. says, a mani-pedi. Treat yourself. <laughs> Chris S. says, a ball of weed as big as $50 worth of weed. <laughs> Anthony S. says, a Chicago 50-ward advent calendar, $1 for every ward. <laughs> Michael N. says, the last piece of studio equipment needed so that the show won't be cucked by Northwestern football anymore. <laughs> Ethan P. says... Cucked. Ethan P. says, 10 pair of large latex gloves. What? 
Yeah, these expensive latex gloves, I guess. Uh, via DM, Bradsky N. Congratulations, by the way, Bradsky. Uh, and A3 laminated. What does that color of phlegm mean? Chart to hang on his wall. <laughs> and uh, I'll explain more when you ask me what I did on in, uh, Facebook and social media this week. Also via Twitter, we had a, Twitter. We had a couple people. Uh, Cheap Soup says, only because Chuck has to actually ask for it. Instead of a joke, I say donate to Pueblo Sin Fronteras for the great work they are doing right now. And Agreeing412 said, a donation to the human fund. <laughs> Money for people. <laughs> Finally, David S. says, a new bong. Aaron B. says, $50 worth of dignity and or respect. And Ladio says, a teeny tiny tie stick. Uh, I would like to get $50 worth of dignity or respect. That would be $49 more of dignity and respect than I actually have. I like Jeffy D.'s, Jeffrey Dorchin's. A uh, pound and a half of locks. That sounds spectacular, and I know where I could get it over at N- N- uh, New York Bagel and Bialy. By the way, I sliced my hand really bad recently outside of New York Bagel and Bialy uh, over on Dempster, and they helped me patch it up. And Wait, what'd you slice your hand on outside a bagel place? I was reaching underneath the car seat for something that I had dropped and cut myself on the rack that holds up your seat really bad. And I went in, and there was a Chicago cop for some reason in Skokie hanging out at the New York Bagel in Bialy, and he looked at my hand and he said, ah, just go wash it off, it's fine. Uh, so, Jeff E.D., I liked your one and a half pound of locks. Uh, I really like Amy M's $50. That's a great idea, just asking for a gift card. But the first response, Josh saying the gritty T-shirt and a shake weight, that is fantastic, and I will actually ask for that. <laughs> To my secret Santa. Now, my response to this week's question from hell, what's the $50 maximum gift should Chuck request from his secret Santa? I have no friggin' idea. That's why I'm asking you. If I knew what I should ask for, I wouldn't be asking for your help. So that makes this week's winner, Josh, for telling us that the gritty t-shirt and shake weight should be my gift requested to my secret Santa. This is Hell Office Hours Happen this and every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. The bar downstairs from the This is Hell Office and hopefully hopefully soon our studio completed as well. Drop by the bar any Wednesday evening, hang out and chat me up and I'll give you a free book related to the show just for dropping by. That is, if I remember, and I haven't been remembering lately and the books are starting to pile up in the office. Come on in, say hello, watch me drink. Get a free book and some This Is Hell advertising stickers so you can subvert public advertising with the words, This Is Hell. And had you dropped by this week, I would have given you my uh, summary on what happened in the Canadian Football League's Grey Cup championship game last Sunday, which I find fascinating. I'm a CFL fan of all the stupidest alternative sports to be interested in. I'm really into the CFL. A couple of things that are just absolutely amazing about the Grey Cup. One is that every time the Grey Cup is played, the first person to speak to the audience is the local First Canadian, Native Canadian chief, who welcomes people to the area of that treaty. So he'll say something like uh, like this year. Um, welcome to Treaty Number 6. We are welcoming you to our land. They make a point of having a Native Canadian come out and say, "We are. this is our land, and we are welcoming you white people here. And at the end, they always tell you what, where the next 
uh, Grey Cup is going to be. So this year's was in Edmonton. Next year is in Calgary. And so at the end, he says, uh, you know, thank you for coming to the uh, native term for Edmonton. And then he says, uh, and coming to treaty number seven next uh, next year. Join us in Calgary, and he uses the Native American name, or Native Canadian name, and then says, join us in Calgary, the site of Treaty Number 6. So that's the kind of insight you get from coming to Office Hours. This is how Office Hours happen Wednesdays from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Congratulations to the Calgary Stampeders and Bo Levi Mitchell for finally getting that monkey off your back. I want to thank the people who have dropped by over the past couple of weeks, including Rod. Alex, Pete, Elliot, Shelley, Jordan, Shankar, Lucy, Nate, Richard, Ken, Michael, Rebecca, Kevin. And I know there were plenty more people, especially on the night before Thanksgiving, but I started getting dizzier and dizzier as the night progressed, which in retrospect were probably the first signs of me getting so sick I had to cancel last week's live show. You too can talk my potentially dizzy ass up and get free books and stickers at This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday 6pm to 9pm at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, our fantasized view of Africa. During a moment of truth, Jeff answers the question, what have we become? All that stuff plus what Alex has been up to on social media. We want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. We're not getting to twist off knowledge. Who's kidding who? And what's happening, we'll be telling you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Let's go back into listener feedback for a moment. Our email here is from Jonah. He writes to us at chuck at thisishell.com. My name is Jonah. I had a brief exchange with one of you guys on Instagram. You mentioned that you are still looking for people to help out with This Is Hell, so I figured I would follow up with you. A little bit about myself. I'm a 20-year-old restaurant worker who is trying to go to UIC sometime next year for political science. Over the past few years, I've been in and out of school, did a six-month stint in France working as an au pair, worked doing uh, manual labor in a variety of restaurants, and I have gotten extremely into talk radio and podcasts. I discovered this is hell a little less than a year ago while working as a Jimmy John's delivery driver. One day before work, turn, uh, tuning the radio, searching for something to listen to other than NPR and Tom Hartman. Oh, God, if that's what you're listening to, yeah, you need to find something else to listen to. While I schlepped deliveries around town, the cacophonous sound of your intro, followed by your saying, this is hell, suddenly filled my car speakers. And after having listened to the first few five minutes, I was hooked. I appreciate the work you guys do. As I think left-leaning independent radio is as important now as it has ever been, especially given the rise in the numbers of people flocking to left-wing political orientations as well as the rise of neo-fascists and the need to combat them in the U.S. and elsewhere. I probably don't have the qualifications that most radio shows would look for in a possible future employee. We've got a real stringent criteria here. But I am a hard worker, quick learner, and have grown up around the arts. I'm also extremely interested in the topics discussed on the show and like to keep up to date with current events. Chuck, I listen to over a dozen podcasts. Clearly, I have no life. And I've been dying to work on your show since I started listening. I'm willing to do any kind of work, preferably legal. Oh, well, then I don't know if we can use you because there's some illegal work we really need to have done that you might have available. And I'll put in the time and effort to learn anything required in order to do my part to help you and you to help you guys out at This Is Hell in any way that I can. I've attached my resume in case you would like to take a look. 
Thank you so much. And I really hope to hear back from you soon. Jonah and anyone interested in becoming a volunteer staff member on This Is Hell, please email us at chuckatthisishell.com. As the show is expanding, we are going to need more and more help. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell are Leo O'Connell and Alex Jerry. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Africa has a special place in our imagination. Unfortunately, that's about as far as our understanding of Africa goes, existing within a fantasy that is based on myth. Here to help us understand Africa and its history as well as its potential future, writer Zoe Smudzi is author of the Aurora Magazine article, Africa's Place in the Radical Imagination, Our Internationalist Concerns for Africa Must Necessarily Transcend the Flattened Talking Points to Which the Continent is Frequently Reduced in Our Discourses. This is Zoe's third appearance on This Is Hell. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Zoe. Hey, glad to be in hell again. It's always great to have you on the show. You can find Zoe's article at RoarMag.org, and you can follow Zoe on Twitter at ZTSamudzi, that's S-A-M-U-D-Z-I. You write, how does a geographic area occupy both a physical existence and a figment of our imagination, now even further tangled in Wakanda fantasies? What is the cultural, political, effective discursive place in which impression or illusion or desire takes primacy over materiality. How much do you think the vision that people in the United States have of Africa today is based on fantasy? Um, I think it's pretty, it's pretty massively um, rooted in fantasy. I think it's a combination of like fantasy and the little blips of, of like foreign policy images and kind of war scape images that we see. Um, while some of the fantasy is rooted in some realism, I think that it's largely kind of our imagination gone wild and we're filling in a lot of the gaps of the things that we assume happen um, on the continent. Um, or the fact that, you know, you've got the Lion King where there are no people at all and it's just a place that's overrun with animals. Um, Either way, it's I don't I don't I think of most of it is, is pretty unrealistic. Do you think we view it view Africa as an empty continent, as, like the way that Europeans and even you know whites today view what the United States was before the before settlers before Europeans came here? Is there that sense of emptiness to it? So it, it's, it kind of implies that we can do whatever we want. Oh, completely. In the same vein that settlers in the United States had manifest destiny, um, Cecil Rhodes had Ky- Cape Town to Cairo, and he had this desire to just colonize the entirety of the continent. And then you have the Berlin Conference that is carving up, um, carving up the continent amongst you know France, Britain, Germany, Belgium, all of these European powers, with no regard for the existing sovereignties um, and borders and and you know, political organizations and socialities of people who've been living um, on the continent for however many thousands of years or since the beginning of human existence. Um, yeah, it's 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 the same set of logics. It's the same entitlement. It's the same kind of arrogance. Yeah, it's it's identical. And they yeah, it happened on the continent before it happened in 
in the United States or in what is now called the United States. Earlier, we were talking to historian Pero G. Dagbo, the author of Reclaiming the Black Past, the Use and Misuse of African-American History in the 21st Century. And in his book, in the conclusion of his book, he does this kind of review of the National African-American History uh, or Museum of History and Culture in Washington, D.C. And he points out that one of the things that, while he thinks the museum is spectacular in many ways, he also points out some of its shortcomings and one of the shortcomings that he points out is that when they talk about the slave trade, they talk about the slaves coming from Africa and not the multitude of kingdoms and areas and countries and different separated cultures and languages, but just that they're coming from Africa. What do you think is lost on the visitor to that museum when they only see the slave trade and the slaves as coming from some nebulous Africa? Yeah, so in in kind of some Afrocentric thought, one of the words for the transatlantic slave trade is MAFA, which means, you know, Holocaust catastrophe. And I think that there's something of a misnomer in equating the transatlantic slave trade as a continental catastrophe, because it wasn't a continental catastrophe. It was a regional, if anything, catastrophe. And there were many parts and many different peoples and cultures that were, while, un, while affected by colonial processes other part, on other parts of the continent, were unaffected by that particular um, uh, economic process of like extraction and trade in chattelized peoples. So there, when, we, when we have these conversations about um, diasporic folks, like going back to the continent, um, and folks who were, who were the descendants of people who were forcibly enslaved and sold across the ocean to North America, going back to the continent, and kind of conflating Blackness and African-American identity and African identity. There's just this smushing of, of Blackness, and there's this smushing of, of experience and of histories. Um, and, and I think it's, and I understand where the, the impulse comes from, to some extent, like I can completely understand this desire to return to this identity and this culture that was robbed from you, um, but treating the continent um, as, a, as a monolith in the same way that colonial imaginations treat the continent as a monolith is not the way to go. Because diasporic African folks who were brought to the United States through the slave trade are not necessarily going to find their own ancestral roots, for example, in like. Ethiopia or Djibouti or Somalia or something like that. It's, and it does a really, it does a disservice to the fact that even after the slave trade ended or while it was, while it was ongoing, there were other cultures doing other things in other parts of the continent. Um, and I think that there's something really, that there's an internalization of this colonial messaging about the continent and a perpetuation of it that I think is really damaging. There is no other continent that we describe in its entirety like we describe Africa. I mean, maybe you could say Australia, which consists of only three nations, Australia uh, and the Australian island state of uh, Tasmania, Papua New Guinea, and New Zealand. And arguably, New Zealand isn't included in the Australian continent. It is part of the submerged continent of Zealandia. So so to what extent have we at least more recently, or to what progress are, what kind of progress are we having when it comes to 
understanding Africa as a multitude of civilizations and a multitude of cultures, just like we view Europe as the French people being distinct from the German people, being distinct from the Italian people, and so forth. How much progress are we making in delineating the different cultures and understanding the different cultures that make up Africa? Yeah, so first I think I would say that I think that we sometimes treat Asia similarly um, as a monolith. Like we talk about Asian people, but when we say Asian, we tend to be talking about like Asian folks. Like we tend to be talking about Chinese, Japanese, and Korean folks, and maybe not about like Afghans or South Asian people, East Southeast Asian folks. So I would say that Asia as a continent, I think because of its like sheer size and population, sometimes gets turned into a monolith as well. But um, yeah, I think that there there's kind of a, with, there are some cultures on the continent and some areas of the continent that produce like cultural expressions that have become, that have, that have popped onto our mainstream radars. So we often talk about Ghanaians and Nigerians because of the popularity of Afrobeats or because of um, West African food. We talk about like the Jollof Wars and all of that. But I think in general, we sometimes talk about South Africa um, as like almost being its own continent. Um, but, but yeah, I think we lose, I think we lose a lot of our ability to, to humanize and to actually forge diasporic relationships with the continent by treating it as a single mass. Um, because we, that allows us to not see it as a continent that is comprised of different human being peoples that have their own interests and agencies and desires, social, political, economic, cultural trajectories. Like we see them as, as these kinds of objects that can be utilized for our own narrative goals. Um, I think I forgot like the first little part of your question. Uh, it was, just, was what are we losing? Well, what are we losing? But uh, you, you touched on how much progress we are making. But what what do we lose in our in our understanding of Africa when we just kind of glob it all together? Yeah, I think we we lose our understanding of of Africa being a continent full of different peoples um, that that have, like I said, interests that are both similar in some ways to our own, but also very different. Um, to our own, like I was talking to a friend of mine who, you know, we were talking about the election, you know, between Hillary and, 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 and Donald Trump. And they were just like, I mean, well, regardless of who wins, like, we're still going to get, we're still going to get bombed. We're still going to get destroyed. We're still going to get punished with these sanctions. So who cares? Right. We, we, we use the continent in our kind of foreign policy talking points, but um, we don't quite think about what the implications of our policy is in the same way we maybe think about like what happens in Palestine um, as a part of our tax money going towards the sustenance of the Israeli um, settler state. Um, yeah, I think that we deny people of an agency and that's exactly what the colonial project set out to do. And I think that that's really, that's a really scary and harmful um, when it comes to the current and ongoing war in Yemen and the United States' support for that war, and we see a lack of an anti-war movement here in the United States when it comes to that war, do you think that that war in Yemen is being ignored more by not just 
our mainstream media, but also the anti-war movement, because it is taking place in Africa? Well, I mean, I think, is Yemen Africa? I mean, you know. Is the Saudi thing, is that Africa? Right. So there's another question about it, you know. Uh, it, it, it's, on, it's on the continent of Africa, isn't it? No, I don't think. I think it's uh, in like the... Arabian Peninsula. You're right. Arabian Peninsula. Uh, you are absolutely correct. Um, it, it was just something I was just thinking of. I was like, well, wait a second. Is that one yeah, of the... I was like, I don't think that I've ever heard any Yemeni self-describing as being African, although that, I don't think that that necessarily is the, the proof of geography. Yeah. Um, it was just something... But, just... I would say, but I would say that same question applies to AFRICOM, like AFRICOM right. expansion on the continent. Um, we don't see these, like, bombings and wars in the way that we see these, um, like, NATO campaigns and coalition efforts, like, in um, Yemen or in Syria. But we do see the steady expansion of kind of coordinated military efforts between nation-state governments on the continent and the United States government. Like, I remember a few months ago, I saw this... Um, joint training exercise between the South African military and the U.S. And I was really confused because I was like, I don't know if South Africa has been to war with anyone in in a while. Like, I don't not, I think there was like a thing with Botswana. I think maybe South Africa was involved in the Congo in some capacity. But like, since the South African apartheid government was like at war um, with Namibia or at war with, um, the freedom fighters in South Africa, like, I don't know if South Africa is, like, actively entangled with anything. Um, I know that there, you know, there was some militarization in Northern Africa, like in Mali, but it's really nerve-wracking to see the securitization spreading across the continent in this kind of war on terror um, um, framework, because I think that kind of preemptive militarization um, actively seeks to turn... To, to create enemies and to criminalize, like, not yet even radicalized or not yet actively, like, it, it's, it's, it's turning people into criminals and turning people into terrorists and turning people into an enemy and, and normalizing this very American state of, like, perpetual war and perpetual state of emergency in places where that doesn't necessarily exist. Um, and that, to me, is really worrisome. Like, that's our, that's our tax money at work. Um, turning the continent into this kind of proxy battleground for a war against a war against terror, war against Islam, or um, we're not talking about when we talk about drone warfare, we don't talk quite as much about Somalia as we talk about Pakistan and Afghanistan and and other parts of Asia of, of South of South Asia and Western Asia, and um, I think that erasure is really is really dangerous because Africa as a continent that is full of resources continues to be carved up and continues to, um, to exist in a state of instability, a manufactured state of instability, because it is this instability that allows some extent multinationals to thrive, to make these negotiations with governments, to be able to extract um, resources, like all of the extraction that happens in the DRC um, and across the continent. Um, yeah. Well, just getting back to my geographically challenged question, uh, the, the United States with AFRICOM is uh, involved in Niger and plenty of other countries within the African mm-hmm. continent. Do you think that 
even the anti-war movement here in the United States doesn't pay attention as much to wars that take place on the African continent simply because they're taking place on the African continent. Is there something inherent in all of American culture from left to right about the way in which we view Africa? I think that there's this synonymization of Africa and conflict, right? Like, even before the United States shows up or NATO, whoever shows up, that it's a state of perpetual violence and conflict and tension. And so, yes, on paper, you know, imperialist intervention, like the United States intervention is bad. And also, you know, this would be happening anyway if, you know, it's that kind of attitude. Um, And I think that as much as we maybe don't want to say that out loud, I think that the fact that most of the movies that we've seen about the continent that have been made recently have either been about poverty or about war. Like, I remember when um, that movie with Idris Elba came out, A Beast of No Nation, which is about child soldiers, um, or, or if it's not about poverty or war, it's about these, like, spectacular cases of people being able to rise above their circumstances and do something remarkable. Um, and it's really frustrating that kind of those are the three storylines in a place where there is so much going on at the same time. Um, but yeah, I think it's kind of this popularization of, of Africa as synonymous with AIDS or, or, or violence or war in some way that almost makes intervention an inevitability. And so maybe less of a priority for us as people who are organizing around um, kind of anti-war stuff. But, never, but, but, you know, we'll talk about how, you know, what Hillary did to Libya. We'll talk about what happened in, in Somalia and then, like, Black Hawk Down and whether or not, like, that was okay or whether that was bad. But we don't have, like, a, like a proactive um, opposition to militarization on the continent quite as much as we do in other parts of the world. And you write that there is no robust understanding of imperial military strategy without the Department of Defense's AFRICOM, an American government-coordinated combatant command, whose mandate purports to uh, promote regional security, stability, and prosperity despite actively militarizing the continent in service of American security interests, ones often at odds with the material needs of large swaths of the communities within the countries in which they operate. How much, and is it fair to say that the United States is military, militarily occupying Africa? I mean, I guess it depends on who you ask, right? Um, <laughs> I would say that, I mean, the United States presence, like there is a military presence in a number of different countries that the United States is not at war with. So I guess, I don't know. I guess if you're like, maybe there's like some official Geneva Convention guidelines about what constitutes an occupation. Um, But even if it's not an official occupation in the way that maybe Israel is occupying Palestinian territories, then there's there's a there's a specter like not even maybe a specter, but there's a there's a a nerve wracking presence, a nerve wracking military presence on the continent um, that does not need to be there. Um, yeah. What? Uh, so AFRICOM, that started under President George W. Bush in 2008, but continued and was fully implemented, including being involved in several wars in Africa during the Obama administration. What does that reveal to you 
about the U.S. or any what does it say to you about any differences between Democrats and Republican Party policies towards Africa? What does it say to you about the Democrats and President Obama when AFRICOM was not eliminated during the Obama administration? I think, you know, when we talk about Democrats and Republicans being the same, I think that there are a lot of very marked differences in, in, in certain social policies and even some economic policies. But I think that when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to the kind of primacy of a hegemonic American presence abroad, I think that um, the the interest in that is bipartisan. I think when we talk about, um, for example, when we talk about order, um, there is not really a bipartisan distinction in what constitutes order domestically when the notion of order revolves around um, police and the police's maintenance of the monopoly on violence. I think that that same bipartisan interest in order extends into foreign policy and when we talk about so-called like global security, um, maybe the Democrats don't say global security quite in the same way that Republicans do and the way that they are kind of enthusiastically neoconservatives in these like nation building exercises. But I think that Democrat, Republican, there's no real difference in, um, in opposition to America as the kind of global police force. And maybe Bernie Sanders, I think he sent some, some bill or something about like, Yemen or Syria. Um, but I'm just like, why not AFRICOM? Why not this this ongoing like drone? Well, I mean, Bernie Sanders doesn't actually disapprove of drone warfare, but like, why not this wholesale opposition to the militarization of the continent? Um, there's something that's so normal about imperial exercises um, across the continent and in and, and Africa and the freedom of Africa means is it would be so destabilizing, I think, to the global um, political order that um, you know it's 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 too too profitable and too fruitful of an imperial project to really let go of. You write that Belgium's King Leopold II infamously ran a slave colony in his ironically named Congo Free State, which he was able to administer under the guise of philanthropic work and the promise of abolishing the uh, Arab slave trade in eastern Africa. Congo has not been free since. To what extent is Africa then, despite the supposed end of colonialism, still a colonized continent? Oof, where do you start? Um... (laughs) I think, yeah, we're, we're actually to start. I mean, if you look, for example, at elections and you look at the ways that certain political figures are propped up and supported and other figures are actively assassinated, um, going all the way back, but really kind of starting with the assassination of Patrice um, Lumumba after, um, again, the DRC, he was freed and, and not freed after the the DRC got its independence. Um, And you see across the continent, even after um, independence, you have leaders being assassinated and people being installed um, in their stead who would be um, friendly towards the U.S. So after Lumumba's, or for example, sorry, in Burkina Faso, after Sankara was assassinated, um, he was replaced by someone who had been working with Western forces in the staging of the coup. Um, after Lumumba, you had um, Mobutu, who 
was a horrible dictator. And even though the United States claims to be in support of human rights, um, he was allowed to do whatever he wanted to do because um, he was friendly to the West. I think that the idea, technically on paper, every all of these continents, for the most part, are independent. But how much agency and actual independence they have um, is you know, is pretty questionable. And a lot of the leaders who were actively hostile to the West and were were actually implementing policies around autonomy um, have been have been removed. And um, I think if we're going to have ask questions about independence, then we have to evaluate this long track record of assassinating these leaders. Um, and 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 um, also, if we look at like structural adjustment policy, and we have these loan and economic liberalization and debt policies that have continued to put the continent in debt, um, despite the fact that there are so many resources, despite the fact that the continent is owed reparations for colonization and for genocides that have occurred on the continent. Um, yeah, neo, neo-imperialism is what Kwame uh, Nkrumah called it, and that absolutely is the case today. And you're right that today economists discourage debt abolition as a it might motivate developing countries, including many African ones, to continue defaulting on their loans or refuse to take to make timely payments or overborrow funds. It may even lead to industrialized nations altogether ceasing financial assistance to these countries because of a poor return on their investments. So where debt abolition is understood as moral hazard per orthodox economics, we might then understand the maintenance of indebtedness as moral, as well as social, political, and economic necessity. In this logic, mm-hmm. is debt moral and forgiving debt immoral? Is that the logic that we found ourselves in? Yeah, I think, yes. I mean, look at look at the conversation that we're having around, like, student debt. Um, it It's, it's, you know the markets, the the capitalist markets maintenance and thriving is is what is moral, and um, implementing policy that would improve the material conditions of people therefore is not. And you know if it's it and it feels backwards because it is backwards I think. And when you look at the way that 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 structural adjustment has has kind of happened on the continent. So what basically happened was that in a lot of places, the gains that were made after independence in terms of mortality, in terms of um, the pervasiveness of certain um, illnesses was reversed because generally with these austerity measures, the first things to go are investments in healthcare and in education. Um, And so to understand, yeah, it's, yeah, I, 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 I don't understand it. There's a lot of the kind of economic stuff with the international organization, the international financial organizations. I don't fully understand, but it's this really backwards logic that in order to keep the continent as a place for investment to continue, in order to keep the continent as this thing over which Western countries can, can kind of hold dominion, um, these countries cannot be financially stable. They cannot exercise financial agency. Um, they cannot have their debts forgiven. They cannot be able to, to enable to, to start afresh. Um, they have to be, they have to, to, to remain under kind of the, the lock and key that is this debt. Um, 
Cydia Hartman writes really beautifully. She talks about with um, in formerly enslaved people in, Af- in the United States, she says, emancipation instituted indebtedness. And she talks about how now that you've been given your freedom, you have this obligation to kind of forever be in debt to the people who have freed you, never mind the fact that they had enslaved you in the first place. And that is very much how I understand the relationship um, between um, the Western world that is imposing these economic conditions in the continent, like this need to, to be grateful for the things that you've been given. Never mind the fact that you are constantly having things taken away from you and that you are placed into this condition of subjugation and servitude to begin with. Um, yeah, I fully believe in, in, in like debt abolition, and I don't necessarily know how it would pan out on paper, but there has to be something better than the fact that like these economic conditions were created by colonial flows of resources off of the continent and then selling them back to the continent. But there's never been any consideration of like, okay, how do we support countries in becoming more self-sufficient or in having these relationships with one another? Um, but that's, you know, immoral. Yeah, it always just bugs me how much when we are considering debt, how much the original morality of that debt or immorality of that debt isn't considered during that conversation. And it just always upsets me to no end when you hear that a nation owes a certain amount of money and they say, well, you must owe that money. And they never say, well, how, why, why did they attain, attain that debt? It just always bugs me. That's not part of the conversation. Do you have any sense of why that isn't part of the conversation? Is it simply a whitewashing so we can still focus on debt instead of our horrible history of wherever we've imposed that debt? I think that there's, you know, part of the, the, the kind of capitalist ethos is it's like, if you're in debt, it's because you messed up your financial whatever, and you deserve this condition that has been imposed upon. So so it's like this conversation about the repatriation of museum remains that is really starting to kick up, um, especially after that report that was um, commissioned by the president of France. Um, you know, we have this conversation about why Europeans should be allowed to keep the quote unquote treasures, but we don't ever have a conversation about how they got them. So I, you know, I'm working on a paper right now about um, human, the, 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 the preservation and the display of human remains in museums. And I was reading about the Alexander Ecker collection at the University of Freiburg that I think had like what, 1,370 human skulls. And there was an interesting audit around, you know, kind of how they were, how they were obtained. And, um, you know, I write in the, 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 the Roar magazine piece about um, the Herero and um, Nama genocide in what is now Namibia what was then German Southwest Africa. And Eugene Fisher was um, an anthropologist that was running experiments on concentration camps and then in, in Southwest Africa and then went on to become a Nazi scientist and to do the same thing within the Nazi apparatus in, in, in Germany. Um, it talks about how he was literally robbing graves. He was literally going to what he thought were Herero and Nama grave sites um, excavating the remains from the graves and sending them back to Germany. Um, in another account, you know, there were literally women that were within the concentration camps who were forced to clean off the heads of their fellow Herero and Nama people 
to give to the Germans who were then selling them um, for this like eugenicist anthropological study market. Um, we don't talk about that when Europeans are defending their right to keep these remains and to keep these artifacts. You know, instead you have people like Tiffany Jenkins writing in The Guardian, we can't return the Benin bronzes because the Benin Empire or the, the kingdom of Benin had slaves, right? There's this, in, in all of this moralizing, right, there is this focus on the African continent as being in some way like prime evil, as, as needing to maintain this morally superior position over the continent, um, to say that, well, they're in debt because they defaulted on their loans, as opposed to saying, well, this whole system of loans and this whole system of structural, of economic adjustment what came out of the fact that these countries were left very often very poor when, um, when colonialism ended formally. Um, there's no, yeah, there's no beginning at the beginning of the fact that in 18-whatever, in 15, 16, 17-whatever, there were these um, exploitative relationships, um, this extraction of human and non-human capital and resources. And then after, you know, these countries were left broke um, and forced into certain kinds of economic in, um, relationships and political relationships with the Western world. Like there's none of this honest narration of this story of debt from the very beginning. Um, and it's a dishonesty that yeah, that, that has a lot of reasons and a lot of purposes. And you mentioned the Herero genocide, so I just wanted to read this part from your uh, writing. Prior to the Nazi slaughter of 10 million so-called Untermenschen, Jews, Roma, Blacks, Slavs, ethnic Poles, physically and mentally disabled people, gays, and other lesser asocial peoples that offended so-called pure Aryan sensibilities. During World War II, uh, Imperial Germany decimated the Herero and Nam people during the 1904 to 1908 Herero Wars. Do we view Africa as a site of genocide like we view the United States and the Americas in general as a site of native or indigenous genocide, or even the way that we view the Holocaust? And if we don't view them the same way, in your opinion, why don't we? So first of all, I think that there's a kind of persistent omission of African indigeneity from all of these conversations about indigenous identity. Um, I remember there was this, you know, Noam Chomsky was talking about all of these indigenous efforts around um, environmental degradation. So he talks about native movements around um, in opposition to pipelines in North America. He talks about um, indigenous folks in, fighting in the Amazon. He talks about, he literally names these particular movements on every continent except Africa. Um, as though, you know, Maasai people are not resisting the Tanzanian government's encroachment on their pastoral lands, as though there isn't this really messy um, battle and, and, and like really gross racist distinction between quote unquote poaching and big game hunting in Southern Africa, as though, you know, Vangari Matai and all of these other um, African led environmentalist movements aren't actively fighting against like the desertification of the continent and the destruction of forests and the extraction of natural resources. Um, so I think like that's a, a, that's, that's the first part, the fact that um, there's this weird way in which African people are not treated as being indigenous. Um, 
And in terms of genocide, um, it's really interesting. Part of what's going on with the repatriation of Herrero remains from Germany, Germany was basically like, we'll give you back your stuff. And it's been happening very slowly. But they were like, this cannot be a springboard for making demands for reparations because the the so-called genocide that happened in German Southwest Africa occurred before the adoption of the UN Convention on Genocide and Crimes of Genocide, which was which um, was adopted um, in 1951 after the Nazi Holocaust. So it's like all genocides that happened before the Holocaust are not cannot be kind of tried and treated um, as genocides, but everything after this kind of precedent-setting genocide, which was the Holocaust, can be. So there was a lot of this. Um, there was a lot of focus on Rwanda and this kind of within this context of never again, but the colonial genocides that happened on the continent, like no. Um, and they're using this really annoying kind of legal Western legal structure and not thinking about like, what would it mean um, for people on the continent who are living in the aftermath of, the, of this genocide um, indigenous, you know, Herero and Nama people who who are still fighting to get the rest of their ancestors' remains from American and from German museums. Um, There isn't this concern for humanity. There isn't this concern for um, reconciliation within these people. The fact that, like, if you don't have a body, you can't perform proper funerary rites. And, like, what are the cultural and familial implications of that, of not being able to bury your ancestors? Um, But all of these very human questions are disregarded because of this excuse me, because of this tendency to not think of the continent as being populated by humans, as being populated by by people who deserve dignity posthumously. Um, and I think that the same kind of understanding is, is applied to, to, to ongoing genocides within settler colonial states. Like, it's applied to um, the United States and Canada. Like, you have to be able to, like, the Nuremberg um, trials kind of set into precedent the fact that you have to be able to prosecute people and regimes as opposed to nation states. And so there's this real difficulty in holding culpable Germany or culpable the governments of the United States and of Canada uh, for the ongoing genocide of indigenous people because um, it happened, like, started during colonialism and the times were different and the understanding of morality was different and genocide wasn't actually illegal yet. Um, and all of these other stupid bureaucratic loopholes that really just emphasize the point that it is the suffering of African peoples is not of worth, it's not of consequence and it's not worth recognizing and it's not worth um, trying to atone for. You write that the prosperity of Western capitalism is presently and has historically predicated upon a weakened Africa, an Africa whose collective economic growth and self-sufficiency is hamstringed by the exacerbation of conflict, corrupt governance, and market politics that devalue agricultural exports and stunt the expansion of manufacturing and industrial and other formal economic sectors. So how much is a liberated Africa a threat to the Western world economically? Does the West live in relative luxury because the West is continuing a strategy of oppression and dominance over Africa, its people and its resources for our own wealth and, you know, comfort? 
Absolutely. I mean, I'm talking to you on my iPhone, and it is the coltan and tantalum and tungsten and copper and 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 cobalt that is extracted from the DRC that goes into making our phones and making a lot of our technology. And like, what would it look like if um, the 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 government of the DRC was able to dictate the um, the conditions of the outflow of these resources? Um, was able to dictate the, the the conduct of the multinationals that are responsible for extracting those resources. Um, what would it look like if, um, if 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 folks on the con if there were manufacturing like much more robust like manufacturing industries on the continent so that people were able to work these manufacturing jobs and were able to produce their own products as opposed to exporting the raw materials and then becoming a market for for western manufacturing i mean it is the reason that um the germ so germany was um they colonized east africa we don't often talk about that but like germany had a colony in what is now tanzania and the reason that the the maji maji rebellion kicked off um in the early 20th century um was because germany was trying to force all of these native folks in tanzania to grow cotton so that they wouldn't be so reliant on the cotton growth that was happening in the American South, and so that they could be stronger players in this um, um, in industrialization, which was really kicking off in Europe. Um, and contemporarily, we have those same people are having Monsanto forced on them, and they're being they're having all of these seeds forced on them. Like there is a very clear through line from German imposition of agricultural practice to like. Western imposition of agricultural practice through Monsanto. And what would it have looked like instead if for the past 110 years, if those people were able to say, like, this is what we need to be able to survive. This is how we imagine um, growth and expansion of the agricultural industry. This is how, you know, if we need assistance in in, in growing our industrial sectors, like, this is how we have the agency to request technological assistance as opposed to having um, certain kinds of technology like thrust upon us when they decide that we need to produce something in particular or they decide that we're worthy of an ask. Um, What would it mean to give different nation states, different communities on the continent, the agency to dictate what they need as opposed to having these charity models um, imposed upon them as opposed to having all of these like market policies imposed upon them and and knowing that they'll capitulate because they don't these, a lot of these states like don't have um, the the kind of power to negotiate um, these treaties these conditions in the ways that other states that are party to them do um, and so I think that yeah a, a liberated Africa obviously this doesn't necessarily mean that that the leadership will automatically be making great decisions but like let's hold that constant um i think that yeah a liberated africa that was full of 54 different leaders that held their own um interests um at heart first before feeling as though they they were forced or coerced into some kind of interaction with western states i think that that would be a hugely destabilizing um, thing. And I welcome that destabilization, honestly. 
That should have been my question from hell, but now I have a separate question from hell for you. We've been speaking with writer Zoe Samudzi, author of the Roar magazine article, Africa's Place in the Radical Imagination. She also co-wrote with William C. Anderson the book As Black as Resistance, Finding the Conditions for Liberation. You can hear our interview with Zoe and William about that book, as well as an article that they did, The Anarchism of Blackness, at our website, thisishell.com. And you can follow Zoe on Twitter at Z. T. Samudzi, S-A-M-U-D-Z-I. Just in case there's some lefty people who are listening right now who are like, yeah, well, I don't have that kind of view of Africa in my imagination. How does the left romanticize Africa? I think the left... So the left has a racism problem. And I think that... um, The left has a problem with black people, period, and that problem extends onto the continent. Um, And I think that, you know, I don't, I wouldn't even say that the left romanticizes the works of um, Amilcar Cabral and Lumumba and Kuma because I don't think a lot of them know or care um, who those leaders are. But I think that, you know, sometimes every every once in a while they talk about Gaddafi and Libya as a gotcha about how bad Hillary Clinton is. And I think that the negligence in of, of the continent and the ongoing subjugation of the continent and the absence of that in left in left conversations like is as kind of morally and ethically condemnable as the way that the right it just kind of sees it as a space for conquest. Um, and, you know, I challenge you to, to, to kind of confront your anti-blackness, both in your immediate interactions with black people and position as white folks in the United States. I challenge you to do the same thing and positioning yourself as like American tax money is funding the colon- ongoing colonization of a number of continents, um, including the African continent. And I, you know, I think that we can't really hold ourselves as being as revolutionary as we think if all of our politics are tinged with anti-blackness and our 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 non-inclusion of the continent and our and our left politics is a manifestation of anti-blackness. Zoe, it is always a pleasure to have you on the show and I hope you come back even though I had a geographical brain fart. <laughs> I'm glad to be back as always. Thank you Zoe and I'm going to bug you in the future, you know that. Of course. Thanks. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. In a few minutes, during a moment of truth, Jeff answers the question, what have we become? If you want to help, uh, if you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become this is hell's pimp, support this is hell. By going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, when you do, we will send you a gift you can pick from at our site. Again, thisishell.com and then click on support. Thanks this week goes to Brooks, who writes, I'm a Patreon subscriber who's just trying to buy one of your stainless steel coffee cups for work and support the program. And as Patreon subscriber, Brooks gets all of our gifts for $5 less than non-subscribers. So if you want to get an additional This Is Hell every week and our gifts for less than non-subscribers, subscribe to This Is Hell patreon.com also thanks goes out to jason who writes send no merch this is just paying up for s posting on twitter plus i'm way overdue in supporting your good work alex do you know of a jason j with an e who is posting something on twitter at you 
Oh, yeah, yeah. So was it, what was it? Can you tell us or not? I don't remember. I was just saying, yeah, because I didn't think you'd ask a follow-up, but I didn't want to offend the person. Uh, J-A-S-E-N? Yeah. Oh, let me look. Uh, we also want to thank eCrypts, E-C-R-Y-P-T-S, which can, I can only assume is some sort of electronic sarcophagi of some sort. And thanks for the tithing-like commitments of Brett, Magnificent Me, and Daniel. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration. Your support will be needed more than ever. Alex, what have you been up to on social media this week? All right, I'm going to get fast because i got Jeffy on the line. Uh, the three biggest pieces that I shared uh, on Facebook that people liked a lot was Self-Care Won't Save Us by oh. current affairs author Aisling McRae. I love that piece. Yeah. And uh, I already wanted to get her on the show, and then this week she had another piece called Resolved, Debate is Stupid. So I really, <laughs> really want to have her on the show soon. Also, Astra Taylor has a really, really good piece for Logic Mag called The Automations Charade uh, about how a lot of the things that we think are automated are actually just human labor that's hidden behind apps. That's a really great piece, too. But... The thing people liked the most that we shared on Facebook was a Fox Detroit story about a gang of police officers <laughs> posing as drug dealers getting in a fight with another gang of police officers. Uh, good job all around, everyone. Uh, also, people on Twitter really liked hearing that you had to look up what a tanky is the other day. Um, and I gave a strong recommendation to one of my personal favorite podcasts, Homo Vulgaris, which uh, you should check out. I think it's very good. And I reshared our interview on the history of politics of tear gas which will, uh, I don't know, probably be pretty timely, I guess, going forward. Uh, finally, on Twitter, I shared an Uneven Earth article about catabolic capitalism that was really depressing, and I remarked that it wrecked my whole day, and then uh, Uneven Earth got back to me, and they said, we're strong believers in the horseshoe horse theory of hope. Make people read really dark and dismal stuff, and eventually despair becomes indistinguishable from hope. Damn, that's pretty good. We should <laughs> talk to Uneven Earth more often. And finally, on Instagram... I shared a chart that I looked up when you were describing your phlegm to me. And, uh, Chuck, there's good news and bad news. <laughs> uh, and then also I solicited help to figure out which Misfits song to play at the bar uh, with my dollars in the jukebox uh, the other day. And thank you, for everyone, for weighing in on your suggestions. Uh, yeah, and I really want to talk to the person about um, de Resolve Debate is Stupid because uh, that's something that I've been promoting here on this show since... Let me check my watch. 1996. The best way for you to get the word out about This Is Hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports. This Is Hell has a very limited promotional budget. So we want to thank all of our listeners who share the show online. Thanks this week goes out to the people who publicly shared the show or interviews or correspondence reports this week. Lots more shared, but many choose to do so anonymously. And considering Facebook's sharing of data... It's probably a good idea. Thanks to John, Frank, Greg, Jesse, Gorilla Gramophonics, Astrid, Nick, Jane, Julie, Franziscus, Magali, the International Women's Strike U.S., Paro Internacional de Mujeres EUA, Anarchimedia, Douglas, Turtle Island Liberation Now, and Fergus. Thanks to all of you for sharing This Is Hell, however you share the show, whether it's through Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, whatever. If you want to hear your name read on air and simultaneously spread the good word about the evil content of This Is Hell, all you have to do is share This Is Hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996, This Is Hell. Alex, I know you have Hefe on the line. What? What have we become? Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. 
what have we become? I keep seeing people post this. And in reaction to the shootings at the Chicago hospital and the Colorado thing, whatever it was, and the bar in Sherman Oaks, a school again, a movie theater again, a concert, a picnic, a church, a fish fry. We have not become anything new. The only change is who does what brutal, sickening thing to which innocent people, I regret to opine, how often and how near. Maybe we've become less lucky. I sincerely do regret to opine thus, and I'm open to dissuasion, but not by Steven Pinker. Steven Pinker is a popular author and a few other things. He believes we're less violent these days. He believes we've made progress as a species. It's an opinion, and he defends it well, although very often, according to historians I've heard comment on his work, he deceives himself. I know I don't have to convince any imbibers of this is hell that all that's really happened is a reshuffling and a miscounting. People lived as victims of brutal violence back in the Hellenic days, and they do now. People were slaves back in the reign of Hammurabi, and they still are today. Women and children and subjugated men were raped in China and Samarkand at either end of the Silk Road from its opening onward, and conditions are only cosmetically different in our own time. And that's not even to mention the animals. But better to be an uptown dog than a downtown Jew was a saying back in the rich and colorful days of the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Why would things be any different? What would have caused this putative ebb of human cruelty? The Enlightenment? The Internet? I Love Lucy? The Magna Carta? The Universal Declaration of Human Rights? The Geneva Conventions? Imagine by John Lennon? The Statue of Liberty? Star Trek? What do we have more of now than before? Technology? Detergent? High fructose corn syrup? Pollution? We try. We try so hard. We have ideals. We exalt the best of human nature and castigate what is base. And you know what? It was ever so. There has never been a time when kindness wasn't considered a virtue. There was never a time when hypocrisy, betrayal, and malicious behavior weren't frowned upon. Even back in ignorant times, ignorance was a human foible. We've always known the right and good thing to do. There has also never been a time when ignorance wasn't considered a virtue, a kind of pure state, blessed by the grace of heaven. There's never been a time when authorities didn't recommend giving an uppity servant a swift kick in the kidney to remind them of their place, and likewise with children and women. There's always been a sizable faction of people who believe extending kindness to strangers is foolish. There have always been xenophobic mobs and smug, stupid despots, and an intelligent, benevolent despot is a despot all the same. We've never come to a consensus on the virtues. We've just forced those who disagree into superficial obsequiousness while pushing their more substantial beliefs into the shadows for a while. We do have a social ideal laid out in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, various treaties and such. Nowhere is the right to exterminate an irritating population enshrined. Nowhere is the right to enslave enshrined or the right to deprive or the right to degrade, persecute, torture, exploit, or abuse, that there's usually a sizable portion of any given population or government that would like those rights enshrined just shows how right has triumphed over might, at least in the ideals we pay lip service to. But I really don't think even billionaires have a choice. I think they're forced to fall short of ideal behavior by a language that enshrouds us like a gas, that's 
in our bloodstreams. I was watching on YouTube a conversation hosted by urbane impresario Paul Holdengraber at the New York Public Library between Yanis Varoufakis and Noam Chomsky, in which Varoufakis talked a lot about dealing with the muckety-mucks at the Eurozone conference back in April of 2016. Varoufakis was, at the time, the finance minister of the Greek government and went there to negotiate a restructuring of Greeks of Greece's debt. And in the end, he was given an ultimatum to agree to a plan for Greece to take on even more debt, a plan that would actually make Greek citizens' lives substantially worse. I remember when these events were playing out, and I couldn't understand how such a deal could be broached. And in talking with the Muckety Mucks, Varoufakis asked if they couldn't see what a bad idea this deal they were trying to force him to make was. And, and they said, yes, they understood. But they had become part of this institution that was what the institution did. And, and they had invested too much political capital, as one muck put it, too much to change course. Now, you would think a person with courage could stand up and do a reasonable thing. But apparently, one doesn't gain a position as a muckety-muck in the Eurozone finance establishment by having courage or breaking with accepted wisdom, no matter how foolish such wisdom is on its face. The structures create the choices such elite people make. The same way society prepares the crime, which the criminal then commits, the financial system creates the illogic and stupidity which then the finance guardians enact. Of course it serves the purposes of those in power, but they are trapped. There is no way for them to decide otherwise. They are programmed by their place in the absurd system. The system tells them they would be considered foolish to behave any other way than selfishly, and they fear being considered fools or considering themselves fools. What have we become? We have become what the system we've acquiesced to wanted us to become. We don't know how to design a system that doesn't use violence to control dissident speech because the system can't assimilate such a design. Sure, if you began designing a social system in a vacuum, you might have a chance to ingrain in it some curbs on irrationally excessive accumulation and exercise of power and wealth, but no society is created in a vacuum. The language we're already immersed in is too well established and rigid. Martin Luther King famously said, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. I can only assume that he spoke from his faith because there was and is no evidence that this is so. The arc of history doesn't have to bend any particular way. Maybe our lofty ideals enshrined in the idealistic language of a collective body of nations will shame the arc of history toward bending toward justice, or maybe instead of those who find unity and compassion dangerous and repulsive, maybe they will have their way and the manifestations of our lofty ideals will be burned down. En masse, we're just a big herd of clamoring apes as liable to get to the watering hole and share its sustenance as to begin beating each other with clubs until a large percentage of us has died. As liable, or perhaps more so, to destroy the world as to take the drastic measures necessary to save it. What have we become? Nothing that we weren't already. This has been the moment of truth. Uh... Good day. All right, stay beautiful, Hefe. We're up against the clock, and I got to read a couple of things. So lovely to hear your voice again. Thank you very much for all of your kind words about me being sick. Oh, I love you. Stay good. Love you too. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is Hal. This is Hal is hosting our third annual holiday office party Wednesday, December 19, all night long at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. 
Last year, we had a huge turnout, as it turns out, that lots of listeners' workplaces either don't have holiday office parties or they don't actually have an office to host a party or they, they don't like the people at their office, yet they still want to attend a holiday office party with their co-workers, especially the ones they actually like. And this year's office party is going to be special. Not only will the Three-Legged Tacos food truck be stationed out front, but Carrie's will have the Goose Island 2017 Bourbon County Proprietor Stout on tap and the 2017 Founders Kentucky Bourbon Stout also on tap, plus the 2017 Bourbon County Stout in bottles. So if your work doesn't have an office and you want to have a holiday office party, bring your colleagues to the third annual This Is Hell office party on Wednesday, December 19th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Two other events I want to tell you about real quick. Past guest Yasha Levin has a Kickstarter to help fund a new movie he's working on called Pistachio Wars, Killing California for a snack food. It's a groundbreaking documentary about Beverly Hills billionaires, marketing madness, uh, water privatization, and war with Iran. Go to Kickstarter and search on Pistachio Wars or Yash 11, or find the link at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Finally, we are very fortunate to have an office space and to be building our new studios above Carrie's Lounge, but outside of my office and the studio, uh, we share the space with an art gallery, Second Story Studios. Tonight is the opening reception of a photographic retrospective called Backstage Pass by the rock photographer Dave Suarez. Over 40 years of concert images are going to be on display. Dave has captured some of the all-time greats from Alice Cooper to Frank Zappa. Again, that's tonight beginning at 5 p.m. at Second Story Studios on the second story of the building above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Uh, Anything else? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, were Leo O'Connell and Alex Jerry. Alex, what's happening on next week's show? No idea. No idea. I thought we had at least one person booked. I guess not. And of course, but I should say, but of course, we will have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. This is hell where the coolest musicians get their news. I want to thank everybody who was on this week's show. First of all, thanks to uh, writer Zoe Samudzi, author of the Roar Magazine uh, article, Africa's Place in the Radical Imagination. Thanks to scholar Sarah Churchwell, author of Behold America, The Entangled Dream of America First and the American Dream. Thanks to historian Pero G. Dagbovi, author of Reclaiming the Black Past. And thanks to writer and political analyst Natasha Leonard, author of the article, Even the FBI Thinks Police Have Links to White Supremacists. This week's Hangover Cure is Curing Your Hangxiety. This is not the media. This is hell. And there's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's edition of This is Hell. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. And this is Eric, and it's now time for A Classical and Beyond, which comes at you every Saturday from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. We want to thank This Is Hell for another great show, as usual. Classical and Beyond.